Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 78 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, and as always is the other half of the show, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we are recording this on Halloween. The, it's the spookiest episode we will ever do. Uh, I, I just have to give a, uh, a little warning first. Um, I, I, we, you know, I think we both don't live in places necessarily where we will get trick or treaters, but I know last night I was kept awake for a while by, uh, people f- firing off fireworks at all hours next door. So if you hear weird sounds or hooting and hollering, that may come up. Also, I'm glad to be doing the podcast today and not being in a position where I have to help someone go out trick or treating because Matt, I am not lying here. Last night, there is a cougar warning in my neighborhood, like on the street I'm on, like there's been a cougar spotted roaming the last two days. And the the timing of that with Halloween, like they're saying, we don't, we're not canceling Halloween. Uh, it, it just gives all this website just gives all these warning tips about what to do if you see a cougar. And it's just like, Ooh, I feel like uh, some kids are in some, for some, some adventures tonight. Some cougars are out looking for Trevor. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, it's funny, though. Like, cougars are just our age now. So it's like not even, that's not even kind of like a thing anymore, right? It's just women our age are cougars. So we are the male versions of cougars. <laughs> I can't even get oh. that out. I can't get, even get that out of my mouth <laughs> without cracking up. It's so ridiculous. But yeah, Trevor, I, um, I, you're, I, a, you're, I, a, you're a you're you're a sexy older man, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus Christ! God damn it! Just man. you, definitely not me, but definitely you. Oh God, you're you're Matt. For those who know Matt personally, you get the the full Matt experience. Let me tell you, he's been posting some pictures lately, and where have, I posted, is, these, where have yeah. I posted these pictures? Okay, Jeff? not posting, but you've shared a couple pictures, and of, you are more yeah. handsome than ever. And me with a cute dog. Yeah, you were holding an adorable little dog, and I mean, we're—I think we are in the golden age of Matt appearance-wise. I don't know how you're feeling. Maybe physical health-wise, who knows? But the golden age of Matt appearance-wise, I'm just trying to think of like what that would be the equivalent to. That would be like, um, I don't know. The um, what's a really ter- what's, what's 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 the best season of a really terrible TV show? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, you're, when I say you're, it's the golden age, I'm, it's like gold, you're, you're soft and you tarnish easily. Yeah, all, right, um, all right, fair enough. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So if you want to hear more of this great banter, I mean, we've now done 70, by the end of tonight, we will have done 78 episodes worth of this. So as always, you have found the show somehow, but there are options with the feeds. We are on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. That is to hear us and a bunch of other great podcasts, including Stephen Graham just launched his new podcast. Um, in the last few days, that's on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, so we're there, a bunch of other great shows. If you want just us with an easy way to access all of our archives, we have a feed that is just us. That's just search for Through the Years, T-H-R-O-H, on all your favorite podcasts, searchy thingies. And then finally, we are on YouTube, and YouTube, Matt, is like it, – it, it's like – uh, we accidentally planted a seed somewhere, and the most gnarled, tiny plant is growing from the most unfertile ground. Because it seems like every time we come back, there's like another two people subscribing, a few more views. I can't believe anyone listens to the show on YouTube. But, I mean, it happens, and it seems hey. to be happening a little more every time. So Hey, why do you think I posted them there? It's, it's people, people do listen to stuff on YouTube. In fact, we should... Um Start doing videos. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Imagine. 
I mean, that's that's what I was doing with talking talking up your appearance. I mean, we gotta prime the pump to get all those sweet video views. But what I would like is to hire actors to pretend to be us and just um, kind of um, you know um, lip sync to our uh, to our episodes of our podcast, so people think that we are studly superstars. Absolutely, we will be auditioning in the coming weeks, yes. but. Um, as always on the show, we talk about the news that happened in the timeline of the Ring of Honor that we're covering between the last show we're covering and this show. So we actually have a little bit to talk about this time, not a ton. And it's actually, it's all kind of tangentially related to Ring of Honor, but I thought it was interesting. I guess the first thing we should talk about, Matt, is uh, kind of a major non-Ring of Honor show that's kind of related to Ring of Honor happens six days before the show we're covering, the Ring of Honor show we're covering tonight, Glory by Honor 4, and that would be... TNA's unbreakable pay-per-view with the famous Samoa Joe versus Christopher Daniels versus AJ Styles match that got five stars in the Wrestling Observer and became the second Samoa Joe match in a year to get five stars when, again, as we've talked about on the the episode where he got his first five-star match, which would be a Joe versus Punk 2, how big a deal that was because... You know, it would have been seven years in the United States since any match had gotten five stars in the Wrestling Observer. Any U.S. match, David, had not yet gone star crazy. And Joe, within a few more weeks, would be getting three matches in a little over a year with five stars. So that was a big deal for Samoa Joe. And in a way, I, I guess, in a way for Ring of Honor, because, you know, all three of those guys would continue to work there. And that would just re- elevate them a little more. But there was also another match I, you know, I forgot about that was actually... Not really significant, but for Ring of Honor fans it was. So I'll just read the recap of it from The Observer that covered on the Unbreakable pay-per-view. Uh, the second best match on the show was a match not even booked until two days ahead of time with Ring of Honor tag partners Roderick Strong and Austin Aries, neither of, who, of whom have TNA contracts, tearing down the house and impressing everyone. Aries pinned Roderick Strong in an eight minutes. This was about as good a match as you could have in that time frame. Strong did several cool different backbreaker variations. It was acknowledged in the pregame show and in commentary that Aries and Strong are usually tag team partners in Ring of Honor. Fans knew, as there were chance of Generation Next and Ring Ring of Honor. Um, Strong did a perfectly timed dropkick, both through blistering chops and hard forms. After Strong did some cool moves, a please sign Roderick chant started. Aries won with a brain buster and a 450 splash. Three and a half stars. So, yeah, it, it's funny. Like Aries would eventually get his run in ring. I mean, TNA as a world champ, but like Roderick, you know, he'd be there for a cup of coffee, but he never really got his big run there but it is an interesting time like it's it feels like it wasn't that long ago in the timeline where we were talking about you know how tna and ring of honor you know tna was really jealous of ring of honor and we are definitely fully in the if you can't beat them join them part now where they're fully acknowledging them just booking them straight up on their pay-per-view it, 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 big difference at this point. This was, I mean, I don't know about you, but this was by far my favorite era of TNA. Um, you know, those pay-per-views especially. I mean, the, the, the TV show, once they once it started, I guess a couple of weeks after the show we're reviewing now, well, you know, like the show, when it started on Spike, I should say, because I think they were still like, weren't they still posting their shows to the internet during this interim period where they were off the, of um, Fox, but, Fox but, but, yeah. but before, they, before they debuted on Spike? Um, once they debuted on Spike, I still, even during the good period, thought the shows just were way too rushed. Like, just, there was just, the pacing was just, nothing really sunk in. But those pay-per-views in the second half, I mean, really all of 2005 were, had a lot of really great stuff on it. And I thought the you know, just the atmosphere was great because everyone was so excited. And 
but I do remember thinking when I'd see some of these ROH guys on it, like, you know, I remember that Aries and Strong match, and it was just like, like, ah, uh, you know, they're still not as good as they are in ROH. Like, oh, I wish these guys yeah. were the main guys like they are in ROH. I, I still sort of had that ROH loyalist stuff. And, you know, I'd be curious to go back and see if ROH still seems as much better as I thought it was back then or if I was really just being super loyal. But I did like TNA at the time. I don't know how you felt. I mean, it was an exciting time, you know, because, you know, you were seeing some of the guys you really liked getting shots there. And, you know, definitely Samoa Joe, most of all, you were feeling like, you know, this guy really has a shot to be something. And for for a while there, you know, up through like the Kurt Angle matches, I mean, you kind of did feel like, oh, this guy could be a major player the way he should be. And then it kind of doesn't all the way work out. But yeah, this was an exciting time. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like like the, this like oh five was TNA's best year, just as far as like putting on entertaining shows? Am I mis- misremembering that? I, I think so. My, my my memory is always like Swiss cheese. I always say, but I do remember there was a time, and I think this was the period where everyone would always talk about like 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 going to what you just said. You know, they would say TNA like blah kind of up and down tv but the pay-per-views are great it was like this this reputation they had for a while where it was like most tna pay-per-views are really good and then everything else around it you know you can take or leave and i think we with bring in these guys like joe and you know all the ring of honor guys and just you know they had a, a lot of guys that could even it was almost like a mid-90s wwf where if the what was going on like the top of the card wasn't always to your taste there was so much talent in the undercard you could usually count on a good show yeah there were definitely eras in wwe where you know i mean honestly like through a lot of the 2010s where the tv was not very watchable which i have i don't think i don't know that their weekly tv has been particularly watchable in many 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 years just personally i uh, hope not offending anybody i know people can take people really get emotional about wwe shockingly these days I, I didn't know that was a thing until very recently but um i found their, their tv not very watchable but they would you know they would they just had so much talent they would very consistently put on very good pay-per-views in terms of lots of good matches and yeah tna was was definitely like that for a while too also, I just realized I made a big mistake. I said this was like uh, – TNA was like WWF in the mid-90s. No, I actually meant WCW in the mid-90s because WWF in the mid-90s was actually the opposite where the undercards would often be not very good. And the main events would usually be like the one saving grace when you had you know, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, all that stuff. But Yeah, yeah. well, this, this uh, 05 still had all the Jeff Jarrett like super interference main events. But some of them were, some of them were good. You know, it just became yeah. the same thing too often. Yeah, or, or yeah, or yeah, or like too much of that. You know, a lot of the tricks that work if you see it once a year, but they were doing it very often. So, right. uh, an, another story. This is kind of interesting. I forgot about this. Uh, also from the Observer, Brian Kendrick's return on Velocity, his return to WWE, obviously several months. He 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 returned several months earlier than he was scheduled to begin, and it was because WWE had to cut so many guys. No, WWE has cut so many guys that they didn't have a spare guy to beat Paul London and continue his losing and whining burial gimmick. Kendrick had not signed his WWE contract as of the weekend, although he had verbally committed. He had made a late call to TNA last week to see if they were interested. Because of the nature of the of the booking committee and having to vote on talent, nobody there could give him a direct answer, and he wound up going to WWTV. Wow. I mean, th- th- I mean, th- think how crazy that's like Spanky. I mean, that's a guy. I think TNA really. I don't know necessarily think they would have booked him to be anything probably than a player in the X division. But I mean, there's a guy that 
you know, can kind of do it all, you know, on the mic, has a good character, has, you know, handsome guy. The only thing he's missing is the size. He has the wrestling ability. And that would have changed, you know, Ring of Honor, too, because if he signs with TNA, presumably he could stick around in Ring of Honor at this time. Yeah, I um, I actually, that's another match I remember. I remember reading the spoilers that that Spanky was going to wrestle Paul London on Velocity, and I went out of my way to watch that. And I remember Spanky having a big grin on his face as he returned, because I think the crowd was happy to see him. Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy that, like, the way Dave put that, like, they, because WWE had cut a whole bunch of people on those, like, famous Black Friday type things not too long before this. And so the idea of, oh, we've cut too many people and we want a fresh face to continue to beat Paul London. Like, can we move you up, Spanky? I I, I presume that's why he actually left, like, because I think he, Spanky was supposed to appear at least on one more Ring of Honor show and pulled out or something like that. I'm not sure. It might have been this show even. So presumably WWE was just like, you know what? How about we start using you a little bit quicker? Um, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I had nothing interesting no, to say. You I had nothing interesting to say, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's never stopped us before, Matt. True. Hey, yo. Um, next up, oh, this one is kind of one of those infamous Observer stories. This I do remember. I think I've even referenced it before on the show, but this is when it happens. I think it's an interesting thing. Again, only tangentially related to Ring of Honor, but – CM Punk has just reported to Ohio Valley Wrestling. For those wanting to say, I told you so, as if there was any mystery this would happen, Punk was buried on his heat appearance backstage, in particular by Triple H, Shawn Michaels, and Michael Hayes. The line on him was that he didn't know how to get over, and that the way he wrestles is like he's doing a simulated wrestling match and not working a wrestling match. Don't worry, no matter what he did, being an unknown who isn't physically impressive by their standard, going out cold, he wasn't going to get a reaction, and the all-knowing types were going to say that. And the truth is, there's an entirely different standard and style of working and getting over before 500 people in a small room and 5,000 in a 15,000-seat arena, and like everything else, it does have to be learned. But it's a complete joke when people pick on people as not being able to work who learn to be good at small rooms just because they can't walk into the big room and instantly get over. I saw enough punk and Ring of Honor where I could see that from a WWE standard of working, he had weaknesses that would show up when he got there. But he was good enough where he was he, he was good enough where he was that the odds were he'd overcome them given some experience. Having what they consider a, a paper reputation as a great worker, as in if he hasn't proven to be a great worker in WWE rings, then he's inherently unable to work in some people's eyes, made criticism of his work pretty much a lock before he even locked up. Not going over on a debut after never being on WWE TV is almost a guaranteed lock. Unknown, uh, no matter how talented, doesn't get over to the WWE audience unless they do an over-the-top gimmick because that's an audience there to see stars. When Christopher Daniels and Michael Modest debuted in WCW in 2000 as indie stars, the big stars gathered around and laughed at everything they did and proclaimed they didn't know how to work. You know who laughed the loudest? Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell. But Punk should do fine because he can talk and because Paul Heyman likes him. Hopefully, like Benoit, Guerrero, Mysterio, and Jericho did as time went on, he'll also eventually learn, quote-unquote, how to work. Punk's OVW debut was in a dark match at the uh, September 7th tapings, teaming with Nigel McGuinness and Paul Birchall, losing to Elijah Burke, Deuce Shade, and Seth Skyfire. So, yeah, I remember that was the famous quote. And this was, you know, when I, I often say, Matt, like, you know, I never thought Punk was going to make it in WWE. Even after, shortly after he got signed, I didn't think. And it was quotes like that where I thought, man, if the knives are out for him already from, like, the power players in Ring of Honor. I mean, not in Ring of in WWE. 
Like he's trouble. He's in trouble. And obviously he got through it all. But I still to this day, that is just a hilarious line. He doesn't know how to wrestle. He just knows how to simulate good wrestling. Like that's like saying he doesn't know. To, he doesn't know how to act. He just knows how to pretend to be somebody else. Like it, it, it's all simulation. It, it's insane. The um, you know, the thing is that that never went away. Like all the way to the end, like all the way to the time after he was a big star there. Everything you would still have, you know, so certain members of that group, including you know, from every, all all accounts, Triple H, that still sort of had it out for Punk. And you know, it was certainly like Dave said, predictable that they would have that reaction to him. And it just it just really it's just amazing that it stuck. The the, the thing that I also thought about though, when Dave talking about how you know, ridiculous that is, you know, about learning, you know, you can learn to work in big rooms after you've learned to work in small rooms. What I found so ridiculous is Dave would sort of say the same thing about Brian Danielson when Danielson signs to ROH in 2000, I mean, to WWE in 2009. Like, he kind of has the same criticism that the, uh, that like the Triple H's of the world had for CM Punk, which I thought was kind of ironic, you know, but yeah, of course, my line's always been, if someone's really talented, they'll just adapt. And of course, that's what Punk did very quickly. But yeah, if if it wasn't for Paul Heyman, I don't know what would have happened to CM Punk there. He definitely wouldn't have been brought up under that name, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it's possible that he'd have that name back now, but, you know, he, you know, like the, everything would have been the same. He would just would have been like... MC Rocker, and like he would have just <laughs> ended up, um, or or like Rockabilly. That's another music genre. I'm just kidding, because that. Never mind. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, um, but yeah, I, I just I, it's it still pisses me off to this day, and you know it makes you understand why punk is just does not like WWE and the people in it, uh, the people that run it. I should say, not the people in it. I'm sure he does like some of them, but. Um, yeah, it, it, it bugs me even now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask you about that. So I'm glad you kind of brought the, the one point of it. Like, I also think this was something like you correctly point out, you know, I think Dave was kind of wrong on it. And to be fair, I think a lot of people were wrong on, they overestimated like how hard it would be for an independent, a, a really talented and over independent wrestler to like adjust to wrestling on TV. Like it's not that and, and different. Like, I mean, like I get it. It's different. Yeah. Like I, I know you can ask any wrestler. I'm sure like you learn have to learn different things. It's still pro wrestling. You know, if somebody can learn how to do like a, a match that gets over in like, Mexico, which is a which is a pretty different style than the U.S., or at least it historically has been, and Japan, and America, they can also learn to work between freaking a small crowd in the U.S. and a big crowd in the U.S. Like, sorry, I know that like everybody is kind of pretentious about like how how you know WWE style is just a different thing. You have to play to a different crowd. It's wrestling. People get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the thing that really proved that to a lot of people that how misguided that line of thinking was, or maybe not misguided, but just overstated, was NXT. Because you would see so many guys get picked up from the indies and go to NXT, you know, immediately, and they would get over pretty much immediately. And it wasn't like they were just standing in the ring sucking their thumb going, I don't know how to work to a hard camera. This is confusing. Like, I mean, I grant most NXT shows, unless the, except for the big shows, weren't in front of big crowds, but people would even say, oh, it's different working for tv than working in an indie and i think you know we saw guy after guy after guy knocking out of the park very quickly and not have these huge growing pains because yeah it, the differences are just not that hard to learn i don't think like, yeah I, you know like if you already know how to be a wrestler like being a wrestler is hard definitely but once you're already good at that like you know what i mean the other like the other stuff will come 
if you just, you know, look, someone tells you what to do, <laughs> you'll figure it out. And as you said, there's adjustments you have to you have to make. But I think most, if you're good enough to get over in front of 500 people, you're smart enough, generally, with very few exceptions, to make those adjustments pretty quickly and right. learn what's what are the few differences. And I bet, and, I, bet, I bet even the even the exceptions had other stuff going against them. It wasn't that they couldn't learn it. You know what I mean? You know what the most recent example of that too was even even though it's gone, that that happens way less often now more people are I think less people believe this kind of idea that you really need to learn a whole lot of things to get over in front of a big crowd if you're over in front of a small one but the one the last guy I think that really had to face this was Orange Cassidy in a kind of a different respect because everyone was like yeah that's a that's a niche gimmick for really hardcore wrestling nerds to laugh at on the indies it won't get over in AEW like even again going to Dave Meltzer not to pick on him but because we're reading his quotes like he'd be like yeah i'm not that sold on orange cassidy blah 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 and then you know he became a very overact in a very large promotion in front of very big crowds and now you see little i mean i'm sure there are more than a few kids you know probably not millions i mean or even thousands but there's probably more than a couple kids out right now trick-or-treating dressed up as orange cassidy because they saw him on tv and thought he was cool just, and that was just, the make sure all those, of just, just make sure those kids watch out for cougars exactly i mean you know, a feisty woman in her early forties. She oh, sees God. a little. Okay. <laughs> not what I was. Not, that's actually not that, what I was going for there. That I'm Canadian. They they love denim jackets here. It's just unbelievable. You know, you got to be careful when you dress like Orange Cassidy here. Yeah. Um, but, but moving on. Man, um, I should have gone as Orange Cassidy. <laughs> Moving on to a uh, another – we also had some more WWE Ring of Honor flirtation at this time because going to an Observer recap of Ohio Valley Wrestling, Dave writes, they did a deal where Johnny Jeter would defend the title against any heel who took out one of their three big faces immediately after the match. Nigel McGuinness was the first to try with Elijah Burke, but Burke beat him with the face plant in a minute 57. Major styles clash, noticeable even as short as it was. You wouldn't believe it's the same McGuinness who had all those good matches in Ring of Honor. And then going to another quote from The Observer, Raw notes from the September 5th taping, Nigel McGuinness became the latest Ring of Honor pure champion to do a heat job as he lost to Damaja. So Nigel McGuinness working OVW and working Raw dark matches. So now that you you mentioned that, I I sort of do vaguely remember his his little mini OVW heat uh, appearance run. Um, you know what? Something I noticed is completely unrelated. Because just because you read the phrase that he said that it was like a Styles Clash. Um, yeah. Before AJ Styles got over, I remember the phrase being Style Clash, and like a clash of styles, but like a, a Style Clash in the match. And then after AJ Styles got over with the Styles Clash, they, everyone started just using the phrase Styles Clash to to mean that. Does that ring a bell to you? You know what? I met. I got to reveal a shameful secret. In the notes, when I have it quoted verbatim from Dave, it is just major style clash, and I made the executive decision reading it to add the S. So Dave has not been AJ pilled. It's me. And actually, I shouldn't say AJ pilled because that's a different connotation probably in a lot of ways. Like <laughs> uh, after especially a recent episodes where we've discussed the, the verbal behavior of young <laughs> young Alan James. It's, yeah, yeah. now it's just a synonym to red pilled. Yeah, exactly. So, not in that sense, but no, that was my, that's on me, and I think you are right. In fact, you know, proven by the fact that Dave actually, I do think, used said it the proper way: style clash, not styles clash. Exactly. I, I didn't even think that, but you know, Matt, you know, as you are, are, you did not list it as you often do, but you still helped me learn just now. So, wow, way to go. <laughs> moving on, 
Finally, the show we are covering tonight is on Spooky Halloween, Halloween Havoc. No, um, <laughs> Glory by Honor 4. We should have just pretended the show is called Halloween Havoc, and like, good luck to all the fans trying to find it. <laughs> Ring of yeah, Honor just, presents Halloween Havoc 2005. Just put this in its own feed as one episode, a new podcast, don't even reference. It's, it's like there was a video game, I don't know if you're into video games, but there was a video game called Frog Fractures that was a very weird video game, and then... They eventually came with Frog Fractions 2, but to be kind of a crazy thing, staying true to the Frog Fractions legacy, it was actually hidden in another video game, and you they didn't tell you what the other video game was. You just had to find it, and then it was just hidden within another video game. Well, that's so some fun video game trivia right there. That's what we should have done. We should, we should have made this, like, gone into some other podcast feed and just had a random podcast not named anything related to the show. And just see, like, hey, if you're listening to this show about, like, dating advice for people in their 60s, episode 17, actually, it's the only way you'll be able to hear the Glory by Four, Glory by Honor 4 review, but uh, we should Let's, let's do a really. dating advice show for people in their 60s. <laughs> do you, uh, do you want like, dating advice um, from people who need dating advice themselves? Well, <laughs> here comes, here's like, the show for you, old person. <laughs> um. So anyway, Glory by Honor 4 took place September 17th, 2005 at Sports Plus in Long Island, New York, to front of a reported crowd of 650 people. Uh, apparently there were some – I forget – I don't know what – if they were previously booked on matches on the show or what, but a PW Insider wrote at the time, Christopher Daniels and Alex Shelley are now off the show. Shelley has a tour booked in Japan, while Ring of Honor's website noted that Daniels' agent double-booked him and the other event had Daniels scheduled first. So I, I do think – a, a, a low-key contender for Ring of Honor feud of 2005 was Ring of Honor versus Christopher Daniels' agent. Because I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, Christopher Daniels' return to Ring of Honor was also leaked when Christopher Daniels' people put on his website, like his schedule for the next few months. And it just they had the Ring of Honor dates there. And Ring of Honor was pissed because it was like, that's supposed to be a secret. And you just all of a sudden like, have shown that he's booked for coming months in Ring of Honor. So... You know, Bill Barons, I think, was his agent. I mean, doing Ring of Honor kind of dirty at this point, probably unintentionally, but it's kind of funny to think. Um, and then we have, as always lately for uh, Ring of Honor, the student dark matches that do not make the DVD. Uh, we have a Antonio Blanca and Smash Bradley defeated Bobby Dempsey and Derek Dempsey. And then we had Shane Hagedorn defeating Pele Primo. And so that was your uh, dark matches. And finally, we open the show proper on DVD with Gary Michael Capetta backstage with Lacey. Uh, Gary doesn't see any of Lacey's angels backstage with her, and he asks, what's going on? But he just says it kind of weird and flushy. He's like, what's going on? Like, I don't think he intended that, but it was like this weird whiny trot on that made me laugh. Uh, Lacey says they haven't been, Lacey's angels haven't been performing up to standards, so she suspended them. All of a sudden, Gary says there's something happening in the ring. He like, he like, he gets a, a, a message, you know, from over the ear, you know, the, I don't know if he even had a, a little ear thingy Artie, in his ear. Artie but, in the headpiece. I, I don't even know if he was wearing a headpiece, but, uh, no, but Gabe isn't wearing a headpiece either. Just, it's a kayfabe headpiece. <laughs> Yeah, but at least we can't see Gabe when he says that. Anyway, Gary says there's something happening in the ring and they need to throw to that. Uh, the camera, uh, before the camera goes to that, the camera zooms in and zooms down Lacey's legs and feet and she yells at the cameraman for doing so. Matt, I just wrote my uh, notes as she, they zoom down to her feet. Maybe Quentin Tarantino is directing Ring of Honor tonight. So, well, the funny, thing is about, the funny thing is about this promo is Lacey just seemed like a 
totally nice and normal person here until the cameraman and then Gary himself started looking her up and down. And like she then she got really bad about it. And it's like another situation where the in modern eyes, the heel is completely the baby face because she was just normal talking about scouting talent. And then a bunch of creepy guys just started like ogling her. So she is definitely not the bad guy here at all. Yeah, they've done that multiple times now where, like, obviously the point of the intention of the Lacey gimmick is she's supposed to be a shrill, man-hating heel woman. But yet, like, they've done multiple times where either the camera leers at her or they did that one kind of segment where she they showed her at, like, the Ring of Honor offices where a guy just, like, hey, tasty and, like, hitting on her and shit like that or, or Shane Hagedorn being kind of shitty to her in character. You know, like – you know, yeah, if, if you would really want to sell that she's just unfairly mean to men, maybe not give her a bunch of on-camera reasons to be angry at men would yeah, help. But. And, and before those moments, she was, again, totally mild-mannered and normal. <laughs> like, just seemed yeah. like, like nice. Like, seriously. Uh, so yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, we then cut to Jay Lethal in the ring. This is what we had to throw to. He's holding a mic. Uh, Lethal says enough time has been wasted, and he asks for Loki to get out here right now. Uh, Gabe gets on the mic uh, as the commentator over the air, and he and Price act like they are completely got off guard by this. This is an unplanned beginning. Gabe tells us it was actually supposed to be Austin Aries versus Asriel as the scheduled opener. This is not on the you know the the sheet uh low keys music hits and this is a rare time in ring of honor we've talked about this before you hardly ever hear this happen where the ring announcers are actually i mean the commentators are actually talking over a ring entrance because they're talking about how this is so unplanned as low key makes his entrance and in ring of honor is rare very rare at this point you ever hear the announcers talk when a guy makes his ring entrance um Julius Smokes comes out with a mic of his own. He calls lethal a racist term I will not repeat, and then a homophobic term I will not repeat. There's a lot uh, of – there's actually – you know, I'm not going to repeat the term, but there's a lot of homophobic comments on this show related to like balls and sucking them and like all this stuff. And like it's just like – well, like it, it almost feels like after a little bit of a, a downgrade, the homophobia has ratcheted up in ROH over the past few months of our recaps. It's, it's, it's kind of jarring. It's all these shows in New York, Matt. That your uh, your your state is letting us down. It honestly could be like these like New York, New Jersey <laughs> suburbs crowds. Like <laughs> you can say that I can't. You're a New Yorker. I can't say that. Yeah, well, um, I'm like seriously. Like I, you know, I've grown up around here. It's not as it's not all as progressive as sometimes it gets made out to be. So. uh Smokes asks how many times he has to stomp Lethal's ass in front of his ancient mama. He's done it many times, so what is in this for him? Uh, Gabe points out that he is still technically suspended, which is it's kind of weird because you honestly forget that because, one, it's been a while, and, two, he's had, like, one or two quote-unquote unsanctioned matches during that time, so it kind of feels like he isn't suspended, even though he, I guess he still in storyline technically was at this point. Um Lethal says he's tired of this shit. He demands Smokes brings Key out right now. Smokes calls Jay uh, Buckwheat. He points out that Key has been suspended since December. Smokes says if Key beats Lethal's ass tonight, he wants Key reinstated in Ring of Honor. Uh, Gabe points out on commentary at this point that Lethal has no power to reinstate Key in Ring of Honor. But Lethal then on the mic immediately says he'll do anything to get his hands on Loki. So basically, yes, I'll reinstate Loki. Uh, Smokes wants a handshake as the crowd chants. Smokes uh, another slur for uh, gay people with a fan in the, cr- in the front row, even holding up a sign that has that written. So they planned that. So like this crowd really into that this t- on this night. So are a lot um, of the wrestlers, to be fair. Yeah, we, we, we will get to that, too. Um, 
They shake hands, and then, of course, that's when Loki attacks Lethal from behind. The match is on, which is the fight without honor. Loki defeated Jay Lethal via pinfall in 16 minutes, 22 seconds after he hit a top rope double stomp onto Jay Lethal while Jay also had a chair draped over his body. Uh, Matt, you know, this was, as we will see later in the show, it was not technically the blow off to the feud, but it was supposed to be. It was, uh, I'm sure the fans watching at the mo- at the moment the match was happening thought it was. What do you think about this match? We've seen it a bunch now. This is supposed to be the big finish. Well, you know, I went to this show. I, um, this was my fifth ever ROH show. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about the venue for a minute, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was at a place called Sports Plus, which I don't even know how common these places are anymore, um, but they were definitely like a very common suburban thing back in the 90s, the 2000s. Um, these like big complexes that had arcades and miniature golf and you know maybe like laser tag and all sorts of these things. Like I had never been to this one before because this was like way out in Long Island. I was I was in Staten Island, but um, you know I'd been to some in like Jersey and places like that. And um, I like I, I just remember because I was I guess 22, um, and I remember no oh yeah 22, and I remember getting there and being like ah like this brings me back to like middle and high school. Like you know I was like I'm too old to like hang out here, <laughs> but like this is like this is such a cool place. Um, so, and I, I went to shows at Sports Plus a, a bunch of times after this. Uh, I'm sure um, Aaron Taub could tell us more about it because this was his neck of the woods. Um, but I, um, but I thought it was a really cool venue. But the thing that was interesting was like this was during a period uh, after college for me, um, where I, for a little while, about four months, starting around a little before this. I worked a retail job. I, uh, I worked at uh, the Verizon Wireless store in the Staten Island Mall. And I uh, – uh, so it made my weekend schedules a little bit um, a little bit tricky as far as getting to ROH shows, especially one, ones that were like not super close, which Long Island, uh, you know, uh, way out in Suffolk County, took me a while to get out there. It you know, probably took me – an hour and a half. I don't remember exactly, you know, depending on traffic to get there. So what I what I had to do for this show, this was the first show that took place once I started that job. So I just remember, like, I think I got off at work at, like, 6 or something. The show started at 7.30. So I remember, like, just running to my car. I picked up my friend who lived in Nassau on the way there. Uh, so point being, I missed this match live. Um, did not get, wow. yeah, did not get there till the second match. This was there was another show coming a little later where I missed the first match. Um, and what I love about it is the first time I ever get to a show and miss a match, guess what they do for me? <laughs> they run the match again. <laughs> I was going to say you were unlucky because it was one of the rare times where Ring of Honor ever did this angle of like, oh, one of the biggest matches on the show. We're like, we're moving it up to the opener, you know. But yeah, actually, yeah, they actually do rerun it for you. So you were unlucky, then lucky. Pretty, yeah. It's a pretty wild thing, actually. How many shows in history rerun the same match twice? Like, in the entire history of professional wrestling. Like, not very many, right? Yeah. So, very like, I, I can't think of one. I think they did it just for me. They knew, <laughs> they knew my work schedule. The other show that that happened in was um, a show in Connecticut uh, that I actually attended with Joe Gagne. 
in October, which we will talk about when we get to that. But um, yeah, so anyway. oh, I was also I was just oh before you get to the match, I was just going to say quickly. Do you know what became of Sports Plus? Because I actually found out like looking up online. I think it went out of business in like 2007. So we're we're like not like it became just other businesses moved in so because when i was just like looking for information on sports plus the other day like one of the first things you get is like a video of some people on youtube like saying like goodbye to sports plus and i think it's 2007 so we were like this was the heyday of sports plus matt that's interesting because you know they were running shows there in 2007 roh was so it's like i guess they they were you know they they saw it to the bitter end i guess um but yeah like the, these these places, I, 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 I'm assuming some still exist in in America, but I, I guess not not nearly as many as there used to be. I mean, I think just you know arcades in general, you know, were like in person were not as popular, and you know the internet became more of a, anyway. Let's not do a, a okay. postmortem for uh, big uh, entertainment super centers, but man, those places were fun. Anyway, that's for our spinoff podcast, So Long Scandia. Do you remember places like that in Canada? We have a Scandia still. It, it is decrepit. It, uh, it yeah. is uh, – like it's one of those places if you ever go – I mean we're getting into something you just said you didn't want to get into. But like it's one of those places where there used to – when I was a kid growing up, there was like new machines every month and new – like brand new video games. And now it's like it's frozen in amber the way it was 20 years ago. Like nothing has changed. I don't know how they're still in business. Like Especially during you a know, pandemic. Exactly. Um, I think the there we have jungle golf, which is basically underseas golf. I mean, not underseas, but underground in the basement. It's basically a very decrepit golf mini golf course, and it flooded once. And I don't know if they've ever properly fixed that. Like, it's just it's what arcades are these days. Yes, oh, very sad. Um, but anyway, this match, um, Jay Lethal and uh, and Hiloki fight without honor. So is this? I'm trying to think. Is this only the fourth ever fight without honor? Is they have like one a year before this? So, oh no, fifth. It's the fifth ever, right? Because it was there was um, Loki versus um, Joe from the first Glory by Honor. Then there was Rave against I mean not Rave, uh, Homicide against Acid from the Wrestle Rave. And then there was Walters against Xavier from Final Battle 03. And then there was Carnage Crew against Moff and Whitmer from um, Final Battle 04. Is that all of them? Was yeah, I, I think so. Because see, the other problem is with me is there's so many match. They also do matches that are basically fight without without honor, but they don't call it that. Because a fight without honor is basically just a no DQ anything goes match. But like, for example, I don't think Moff and Whitmer versus Ace Steel and CM Punk was a fight without honor. No, no, right? definitely wasn't. It was Chicago Street. But, but but if you just, I mean, it's the same thing basically. I mean, that's what makes it so frustrating. I mean, yeah. you could have just e- easily called that a fight without honor. But it's interesting because like the fights without honor that we've seen so far, like they don't all have that street fight vibe like the first fight without honor was joe against loki and it wasn't really presented as this like anything goes brawl it was more like we just don't have any honor so we want to take each other out but it was it was a hard hitting like strong style wrestling match right yeah so uh this was kind of i mean this was a brawl you know but it's not like they were went crazy with the plunder um but i do think this is um you know, I think the fights with that honor have generally been good. I guess the worst one was probably the one with uh, the Carnage crew against Moff and Whitmer. I think this was really good. I um, I'd kind of been bored by the matches between Key and Lethal in uh, in this O five feud. Like, you know, they they were they were fine, but they none of them really stood out as particularly interesting. 
Um, I like their 04 match from uh, Midnight Express Reunion with uh, Lethal's mom getting involved and stuff. I thought that told a really good story. I thought this one was by far the best one since then. Maybe even the best one, period, between the two of them, at least as far as singles matches go, because they did have that really good tag team match in Chicago with uh, Joe and Homicide a few shows before this. But I... um, you know, I, I do. I just thought it it had a good pace. The crowd was into it. You know, they they had intense chop battles. Um, I I enjoyed Smokes's part in the match because at one point he randomly yelled to Loki, "Loki, you're a well conditioned athlete, baby." <laughs> I, I want to hear more lines like that from Julius Smokes. You know, not not just yeah yeah yeah. I want him to just you know compliment people in random ways. Loki, awesome. you've got gr- Loki, you've got great abdominals. You know, because he does. He didn't say that, but he did say he was a well-conditioned athlete. Um, I also like that they, the announcers, did point out multiple times that even that Smokes kind of his his questions to Lethal kind of made no sense because he was like, "Jay Lethal, if Loki wins, you have to reinstate him." <laughs> and the announcers were like, "Obviously, Jay Lethal can't do that. What are you talking about?" Like, which is funny because like. I wasn't there again, but I assume for the live crowd, there was no one there to say that. Like, they just made it seem yeah. for the live crowd like this was just the official stipulation that Jay Lethal would reinstate Loki <laughs> if Loki. And to him. be fair, I guess it they, they abide by that because, yes. I mean, uh, it's it's funny because I think what they were trying to do at this time was they were trying to, like, they kept trying to reference, like, you know, we really need an authority figure because th- things are getting out of control. But, like, like I, I guess that's like presupposes that without an authority figure, things like this can just happen. That a wrestler yes. can make like big company moves, and the company just has to abide by them. I mean, it, it's it's such a weird logic. But I also the other thing that I did get is like, so is the is the storyline here that there's literally no authority figure in ROH even behind the scenes? Like, who's making the matches? Who's booking the arenas? Who's paying the? You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be somebody in charge, right, for these things to happen. Is it a workers' collective? In which case, okay, that's cool. But I don't. I don't think that was the storyline um yeah but that would be good if the inmates were truly running the asylum um, <laughs> but um but yeah oh, by the way another thing that i noticed um did you notice there were only two referees on this show um no i did not actually paul turner refereed almost every match in the first half i think all but one and then todd sinclair refereed a couple in the second half and then there was no referee for the final match um so this is paul turner and he's just there pretty much the entire first half but um anyway um you know like this is just a lot it's very hard hitting um they um you know the crowd is a little bit confused early on but they get the crowd into it pretty quickly they you know with their chop battles the loki goes for the double stomp off the apron but lethal moves so loki just like jumps at him um and they're teasing doing their finishers on the floor through the table and they're on the floor for a really long time and um they, you know, they, uh, they eventually unintentionally break a table, but Lethal blades pretty early, and Loki breaks the table apart, and, you know, Lethal, Lethal, I would say, he's, historically, his blade jobs have not been very good. I think this one was probably his best one that I've seen so far. Not, nothing great or anything, but definitely not, a, like, an embarrassing blade job. You know, sometimes you get yeah. those blade jobs where it's like, uh, you know, you might as well have not done that. But this time, um... Uh, it was pretty good, and there was a spot where Loki gets Lethal in a camel clutch, and he screams, "Bleed, you punk!" Um, and <laughs> Lethal would have been like, "If I was a punk, I'd be bleeding much more than this." Um, <laughs> get it? Um, they they bring in one of the Section A signs from the crowd, which I thought this was really funny. It prompts a Section C chant. 
Um, <laughs> like, like the section C was like jealous about the sign. Like they, they, they wished that they wanted their own sign in the ring. I don't know what the deal with that was, but um, I wanted a C section. I just want people that are big fans of that style of birth. I know I am. <laughs> what happened for me? So, well, now I am too. Then, if that's how that, that's how you came into the world, <laughs> saved um, my life. Yeah. Okay, so um, Loki <laughs> Loki propped up the Section A sign and starts finger painting it with Lethal's blood. Um, I will say this: wrestlers find very creative things to do with blood. Um, and Gabe says, "Should we edit this?" And I guess nobody answered him because they did not. They did not edit it. It was in the match. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, Loki goes for the Tree of Woe double stomp, um, but he misses it. Lethal comes off the top with a, a back heel drop kick and he hits a few more big moves. And then when Loki avoids the dragon suplex, that's when Lethal brings Julius Smokes into the ring because I guess he gets up on the apron. And that, that kind of brings leads the key to bringing a chair and they have a tug of war with the chair. Lethal wins that. And, but Loki drop kicks it right into him and gets a two count, and that was a really good sequence. Um, then Loki hits the top rope double stomp, and Lethal kicks out to a big pop. It's a great near fall, and so Key starts whacking away at Lethal's midsection with the chair. He puts the chair on top of Loki of Lethal's chest and comes off with another double stomp into the chair onto Lethal for the win. And I, I was just wondering, like, how did that not break Lethal's ribs? Like, I know, like, like there's just I just don't know, like, how the quote worked version of that is any different from what a real version of that would be. You know what I mean? Like how do you work jumping off from a high, high height onto a diff on a hard chair that's on top of somebody's ribs? I don't know like how you, like what you would do differently there than if you were actually just trying to break their ribs. But I thought the match was really dramatic and I thought the crowd was really into it and I thought it was entertaining the whole way through. Um, you know the only uh, the only downside is that you know the the crowd really liked Loki here. Like you know Loki didn't Loki. Yeah, here's the thing. I guess when Loki really wants the crowd to hate him, he's less entertaining. And when he's yeah. more entertaining, the crowd likes him. And he was very entertaining here, so the crowd liked him. And I like the match, and I think it's one of the better openers of the year. Yeah, I, I thought this was a very good match. Uh, I, I would I agree with you in the sense that. I think they they had real magic, these two, in the Midnight Express reunion match, their first match together, and they've never recaptured that. And I don't think this match is on that level, but I think this is the closest they've gotten to be a match of that quality since then in their four matches together. Um, You know, there's a bit of extra intensity here from Lethal, which is good because, you know, it's supposed to be the big feud-ending match that he's demanded. Um, most of the offense in the match in the early minutes, is, it's more like a simplified into just a brawl, which, uh, lethal throwing a lot of punches, which again, makes sense because, Hey, if you're like really mad, it's not going to look like a standard wrestling match necessarily. Um, I, I felt like the weapon spots, which you ran down all of them pretty much like they were all pretty unimaginative and they weren't like, like it felt like they were just there just because, oh, well, it's a fight without honor. Maybe we should throw these in, even though, like you pointed out, they don't technically have to do that in a fight without honor. But, like, 
where you know Loki leans the table against the guardrail, and then he drop kicks Lethal, and Lethal smashes and goes into the table, but the table doesn't break. And I guess that was probably supposed to be the table break spot because then Loki just like grabs Lethal and rams his head into the uh, table, and it breaks kind of slightly and anticlimactically, and that's just how they end that spot. And it was kind of weird. And likewise, later in the match where he's throwing, you know, like you mentioned, he's throwing chairs and the big si- section sign in in the ring. And he really does almost nothing with them. Like the most memorable thing he does is trying to finger paint with Lethal's blood on the sign. And he doesn't have enough bl- – he can't get enough blood from Lethal to really finger – like it looks like he's trying to specifically write something and he can't do – like he can't get enough blood. So he's like, ah, screw it. I'll stop this. So that was a little weird. But um, no, I enjoyed this and they did really pull out at the end – like the big moves that you would want to see in the sense of for a feud ender, like in in the sense of, I like that low, I mean, lethal kind of learn was very good about avoiding low key stuff, which is the kind of thing you would want at the end of a feud, a guy to show that like he's learned from all the matches where, you know, low key goes to, double stomp him through the table at ringside. He avoids it. And then he tries to double stomp him, do the, the tree of woe double stomp and Le- lethal sits up out of it to avoid it. And even when smokes comes in the ring, you know, he catches smokes, you know, and, and, you know, is able to fight him off and, and prevent Loki from hitting him with a chair shot. So I like this idea that, you know, lethal's really actually gotten good about kind of avoiding a lot of things from Loki. I think the problem is, and we'll get into this more with their rematch that happens on the show is just the booking in the sense of lethal basically loses clean here. And I mean, you could say, yes, smokes does come into the ring and that kind of distracts lethal, but he doesn't hit lethal lethal catches him and fights him off. And yes, that does give time for key to try and hit him with a chair, but lethal catches that too. And they get into that tug of war over the chair and then low key drop kicks him while he's holding the chair. And then that sets up the finish to me. I don't really, especially in a fight without honor. I don't really consider that like that much of a dirty move. No, 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 no. Loki wins clean. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I think that's pretty, uh, I don't think that's good. Like, I don't think it's a good look when the face who's like lost or drawn every match in this feud, like demands, we have to end it right now. And then he loses clean. Like, I don't think that's a great look. For, yeah, I'll, for, yeah. for, I'll have more to say about the whole book. Yeah. When they get to the, when they, when they finally finish this angle later on the show. It, yeah. And I will too. And I also agree about like, I think another problem with all these matches that we've watched and this one, I think it's way less of a problem because I think it's worked a little bit differently. Loki's a little less methodical, but I, I think a problem with most of these matches, other than the midnight express reunion one is as you said, uh, low key when he's being a heel, he doesn't work a very crowd pleasing style. It's very methodical. He he pairs down his offense so less of the cool stuff, and I think that works if you're really behind the baby face because then you're like really getting really pissed at at, at low key for being like this, and it's all set up these huge comebacks where you're just going to explode when the baby face kicks his ass. But the problem is in this match and basically every match in this feud, other than maybe the Midnight Express reunion one, which had that special energy of his mom being right there in the front row and everything. Like it's not that the crowd hates Jay lethal. They like Jay lethal, but I would say this crowd is probably as in most of these shows are like 60 to 70% for low key. And so we have these matches where the heels kind of methodical and he's kind of holding the, and kicking the, the face's ass and the face is doing a lot of selling to build the sympathy that only works if the crowd's really invested in the face winning in the end. And I think in these matches on this night and most of the feud, 
they're invested in just low key being low key more than anything. Not in like, oh, Jay Lethal's finally going to get his big win, and that's what we all want to see. It's like, no, they they probably would rather just see low key kick Lethal's ass and look really cool. Yeah, now, yeah, so, I, th- I think that is an issue for the angle. I don't think that was an issue for the match. Like, I think no, the I, match came off pretty well because the crowd liked the both guys. You know. Yeah, I, I think I think this match of all the matches in the feud, other than the first one, it handles that that problem the best. I think there's still a little bit of that, and it'll come in you know more later. But yeah, I, I think the way they work this, it's a I think Loki is a little more entertaining and 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 lethal is a bit more intense. So it kind and he's selling a little bit less in the sense that it's not. There's been some of these low key matches where he's just dominated lethal for large stresses stretches, and it's never quite that way on this night, but. It's it's it, I guess that's more of a problem for more over the course of the entire feud. But uh, after the match, the crowd chants for Loki. Uh, Key poses on the turnbuckles and appears ready to leave before he walks over to Lethal. He pulls Lethal up to his knees. Le- Key then tells Lethal off mic, but we can clearly hear it. I warned you, if you play my game, I will never lose. He offers a hand to Lethal, and Lethal stands up. And just as he's about to shake Loki's hand, uh, Key pulls it back and poses. And again, that that just added that just made Lethal look completely punked out like he loses clean then he gets kind of suckered into after this blood feud to this handshake and then Loki does the old like you know catch you later buddy and it's just I was like man <laughs> Lethal does not look good right now but um we then get a Lethal Loki feud recap music video that's actually pretty well done and gives us this would have aired before the match if it happened when it was scheduled but they're airing it now so it's kind of weird because like you know, in 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 storyline in kayfabe, they don't know at this point that there's going to be a second low key J lethal match on this night. So they're just like, uh, we had this video package made, but the match is over. But we had it made, so we might as well show it anyway, even though the match is over now that this is building to. So that was kind of a weird point, but I mean, it works out if you know there's a second match coming on this night, but. Uh, we cut to Brian Danielson backstage, and he's wearing a green backwards baseball cap. Brian Danielson just as lovable and dorky as can be. He says, last time we saw him in Ring of Honor, he was very upset and frustrated. He had gone through the feud with Homicide, and he was really upset that he couldn't beat Austin Aries for the world title. He needed to clear his head, so he went to Europe. He, uh, he wrestled in England. He wrestled in Cyprus, Germany, Austria. He wrestled some of the best wrestlers in the world, like Doug Williams, James Mason, and Robbie Brookside. Then Ring of Honor said they'd like him to come back, but Danielson didn't know what was left for him to do in Ring of Honor. He says he feels stronger than ever, but he's already made evented a lot of ROH shows. He's beaten Samoa Joe. He's beaten Austin Aries. He's beaten all the top guys in Ring of Honor. But there's one thing he hasn't done, which is ring the, win the Ring of Honor world title. He puts over every single guy that's held it. He points out that James Gibson has said recently that he would remain for Ring of in Ring of Honor as long as he was the champ. Danielson thinks then that it's going to be Gibson's last night in Ring of Honor. And if it isn't, then maybe it's Danielson's own last night in Ring of Honor. Because the ROH world title is the only thing he cares about. And he's betting it's going to end up around his waist tonight. So Danielson's a big comeback promo here. I like, you know, I think the storyline that they gave for why Danielson comes back immediately to a title shot after his last match was losing a title shot. I think they did a good job. Like, I think it, it was plausible, which is just like they wanted Danielson back. He's one of the best they ever had. And Danielson said, nope, I'm not coming back unless you give me a title shot. And if I were them, you know, in, in, I think in real life, like I think if this was like a boxing thing or like the UFC and like there was a big draw, quote unquote, that wanted a title shot to come back, I think most people would accept that, like in a real sport. So I think it's acceptable here too. 
Yeah, Gabe literally says on commentary during the Danielson title match later that, uh, you know, for, for people wondering, like, why has Danielson earned a title shot when he hasn't wrestled here in months? He actually outright says, like, Danielson said the only way he'd come back is if we gave him a title shot. So, and yeah, I think, I think that's good enough, you know. And I, and I appreciate, you know, that this is something Gabe would do where he would try and justify things like that, where I think a lot of promoters would just not even try and justify that, you know, they could just be like, oh, it's a match. Who cares? Yeah, I know we used to have rankings and stuff, but hey, it's just a cool match. But they wouldn't even bring it up. But Gabe actually does go that extra mile of trying to create a storyline reason of like, look, we he's a top guy. This was his demand. This was if this was the only way that he we could get him to come back. We're gonna get let him jump the line. Which, in a way, you could say would in in kayfabe would set a dangerous precedent because that could say that basically any wrestler that's gone for a little while could just say, "I want a world title match, first match back, or I'm not coming back at all." But the difference is if if some for some wrestlers they would say, "Okay, then you don't come back." Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I'm serious. Like that's like that's the idea. Like like Danielson is just so worth it that they'll do it for him. Yeah, if it's Dixie, no offense to Dixie, they're not doing it. Exactly. Um, and that brings that, us that, to that's, our, that's oh. the name. That's the subtitle of this episode. Uh, no offense to Dixie. <laughs> Which, you know, we've insulted, well, I mean, the, we've insulted the Confederate flag so often that there's been a lot of offense <laughs> to Dixie over the past few months. Next up, we have our second match. Uh, Austin Aries defeated Azrael via pinfall in 11 minutes, 16 seconds after he hit the 450 splash. Uh, this just continues the the kind of career arc in Ring of Honor for Azrael because it feels like ever since he broke away from Special K, he's been having performances just like this one, which are like perfectly solid but not particularly memorable. It's funny, Matt. We we just saw uh, Kevin Steen's last match in Ring of Honor for this run, and I brought up the doing research. I found the podcast quote. I mean, the the shoot interview quote where he said, "You know, Gabe, in this first run, told me all the time. You know, your second match, your third match, you got ten minutes. Don't don't you know, burn out the crowd. Don't do anything too crazy." And this, it kind of feels like this match and a lot of Azrael matches at this point feel. I don't know if he was told this too, but it feels if he wasn't, it feels like he's carrying out those instructions. Like, you know, he's doing these 10-minute matches where they're fine, but he's not really, you know, grabbing people's attention or, or pulling out all the stops. Um, this match is fine. It's I would say it's slightly above average. Ares controls the match, but he gives Asriel enough sequences to not make it feel like a squash. It's interesting in the sense that we saw Austin Aries wrestle El Generico recently, and that match we were surprised because Aries gave El Generico a lot of the offense. For a guy at that point, Generico was not pushed high on the totem pole at all. In fact, he a few months later, here we are now, he's not in Ring of Honor. And Aries gave Generico like the lion's share of the of the offense in that match. And this match, Astro, who's kind of higher in the you would think would be higher on the totem pole, he's been around longer. It seems like Gabe was a little more at one point committed to s- pushing him at least a little bit. Um Aries gives him a lot less. It's not that he gives him absolutely nothing, but I would say he gives him probably as much as a former world champ should give a lower mid-carder. But the problem, I would say, from Azrael's point of view, is that doesn't elevate Azrael. Like, I would say this is a match where you walk into it and you think, oh, Azrael's a lower mid-carder, and you walk away convinced, oh, he's definitely a lower mid-carder. Like, he doesn't – this is a match where he gets some offense, but you're never – you never feel like he really has – Aries in danger like he's not an absolute pushover but you never really feel like Aries is even in trouble he puts him over he he loses very definitively um and, and it's another match you know it's kind of like the Jay Lethal match where you know he's supposed Azrael's supposed to be the big underdog 
But the fans, you know, they're not rooting for the underdog. They're rooting for the big star. You know, they're more into Austin Aries because Austin Aries is cool and he's a star in their and eyes. And he's a baby face. Yeah, exactly. And um, the other thing, I'll, the last thing I'll say here is I've noticed that uh, on recent shows, Asriel is one of those guys. He likes to clap for himself. And this night was an extreme example. And there was a moment that made me laugh and made me feel really bad about laughing. Because first off, right when he comes out immediately out of the curtain, he's clapping to, for himself. And then there's a spot like fairly late in the match where um, he's getting up and it's like his turn. He's getting on offense. And Matt, I don't know if you noticed this, but he, Azrael literally screams to the crowd, clap. Like he just goes, clap. I, just <laughs> I thought, didn't oh notice Oh my that. God. Like when you have to ask, when you have to ask the crowd, like I felt so bad for him in that moment. Like a real, a real, a real Jeb Bush moment right there. Yeah, like please, please, everybody, please. But I, I think that kind of sums up where he was. Where I think he knew, you know, he wasn't knocking it dead at this point with the crowd, and it's just sad to kind of like. To, to know that he knows that, it just made me feel kind of uncomfortable. Even though the match is not bad at all, it, I, I felt uncomfortable at that point watching this match, I would say. Yeah, I agreed with a lot of what you said. I um, I think I think I like the match a little bit more than you. I think this was probably Azriel's best singles match in ROH so far. You know, not like it was a great match or anything, but I think he looked the best. And I think, you know, this is something that Aries does. You know, people criticize Austin Aries, you know, and I don't know him, but like, you got to give him credit for giving some of these guys, you know, more than they he needed to give them, making them seem, you know, like they could at least eventually be a real threat. Like I, I don't think everyone would have done that with Azrael. I, yeah. I did you notice that Aries for some reason and this didn't stick had like weird different music? Yeah, what was that song? I I, I, I want I meant to look it up, but I never did. But it it really did not suit him. Yeah, I mean, obviously they realized that very quickly. But like, why even like if like he has music that works? Like, I don't know. I guess I guess you can't blame them for experimenting with things. Whatever. Um, maybe they like there was something. I mean, I assume they had all the music on like digital files. But I, I was like, oh, maybe they somehow couldn't access the music. I don't know. But um, yeah. Um, they had different music, but you know, I um. The thing that I noticed about Azrael here is because he did get a decent amount of offense. His offense like wasn't bad this time because you know sometimes he's all he's off a little bit, you know. And I don't think he was off here, but I will say it doesn't have the intensity and pop of like some of the top ROH guys. And I think that's what he was missing. Like there was just something, you know, it just seemed a little bit more lackluster, I guess, than like you know than Aries' offense, you know, who's like a you know was a top guy and stuff. So yeah. I, 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 the other thing I noticed, so Lacey was outside taking notes to, on the match as she said that she was going to. This and one other match, I think you see her. And yeah. which is weird. It's like, oh, I'm going to take notes, but really just like two matches, um, two like random matches, not any of the main ones. Um, but uh, it, I just thought it was interesting because wasn't weren't Aries and Lacey a couple during this time? I don't know the exact timeline, but weren't, am I right about that? I mean, I don't know if this was the exact time frame, but definitely I remember during this era of Ring of Honor, they were known to be an item, yeah. So maybe um, maybe the, she was taking notes, and that's when she realized he was the perfect man for her. <laughs> well, or she maybe has she was... really cool music. I should ask him out. <laughs> I mean, we'll have to evaluate then. Does that mean she was uh, – uh, what was the other match where – it's in my notes somewhere. The other match that she was scouting – oh, it was the four-way. So do you think she yeah. was scouting well, – she was scouting Adam Pearson? Like, does Adam Pearson have good boyfriend qualities? Well, I have, uh, uh, I have some comments about um, 
her decision at the end of that four way on who to ask to uh, be part of her uh, group. But, <laughs> but, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I, I I do think that's interesting too. Where I, I felt like that was another problem for Azrael in this match was I felt like Ares actually broke out like a full a few a few cool things, not a full the cool torture the torture rack. Yeah, that he does this torture rack into an almost like inverted Finley roll where he rolls while he has Azrael in the torture rack and Azrael like lands face down, which I thought was really cool. He does a side Russian leg sweep into the turnbuckles. Both guys also take fairly brutal looking back suplex bumps, and I thought. I felt like that was another bit of a thing where it was like, Aries is kind of showing you up a little bit here. And I don't think on purpose. I just thought yeah. like, you know, Aries is bringing some cool stuff to the table. Well, Aries just has more intensity. Like, what was he going to do? Like, not be intense? Like, I, that's, 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 that's totally Azriel's uh, problem. Like, yeah, right yeah. Like, you know, it's, and, Azriel, and, and, it's Azriel's job to bring the, to bring the intensity when he does moves. And, and also Azriel had a problem, I think, in the sense of, um, you know, he, you know, he builds to a big double stomp and stuff like that. That's a bit, one of his bigger moves. And unfortunately for him, he had to follow like the king of double stomps in low yeah. key, who just did a giant top rope double stomp onto a chair on a guy. Yeah. Like, I, I, if I was him watching, I'd be like, "Oh God, why could, could I, I would, why couldn't I have followed anybody but Loki?" You know. I still want like, someone to answer me about like how you kayfabe a double stomp off the top rope onto a chair. Still need someone to tell me how you do that. Matt, that was like that. That chair was actually made out of peeps. You, you just pressed into that shape, mm. very sturdy, but it it, it, it absorbs all the. It, it's it's like memory foam. It just absorbed all the 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 impact. Maybe why, why um, not? Why not make all chairs out of peeps then? In wrestling, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's my favorite Seinfeld bit where he talks about wow, they just make all the chairs out of what they make the peeps out of. But yes, um, also I, I guess we should mention that Lenny Leonard. Uh, takes over for Gabe at this point. Uh, Gabe did commentary for the first match, and he also does it for Danielson Gibson. And this was one of those nights where I felt bad for Lenny because it was like Gabe just cherry picks the two best matches on the show to do commentary for. I was like, that, that I, I I know Lenny. Like I heard him on a podcast talk about uh, you know, he always wishes he really wanted to call uh Joe versus Kobashi, and Gabe just made the call that they weren't going to do commentary for that match. And he's still mad about that. I just feel like Lenny at this point, I would be like, God damn it. Why is he always taking the good matches? You know, and obviously that will change, but like the two very best matches, I think on this show are the two he doesn't get to call. So that is a fact Sympathy for you, Lenny. I don't think anyone would disagree um, with you about that. Literally no one. <laughs> <laughs> we head backstage to join James Gibson. Uh, Gibson says from day one here, he was, he was about being ring of honor world champion. All he heard since ring of honor started was how great it was. And he started jonesing for it. Fate gave him the chance to come here. Gibson says, if you thought winning the title meant a lot to him, you wait and see what keeping it means to him. He says, ask Spanky, ask Homicide, ask Colt Cabana what keeping this title means to me. He says, when they ask Danielson tonight, if he's honest, Danielson's going to say that the title meant keeping the title meant more to Gibson than life itself. He calls Danielson, quote, Mr. Reputation, Mr. Honor, Mr. Pride itself, which I thought was like a like, – <laughs> Like he was very angry about the idea that like Brian Danielson is a good guy, <laughs> but um, and, and he says when Danielson lost his title shot, you know, recently against Aries a few months back, Danielson took his ball and he went home. Gibson compares him that to himself, saying, "When I lost, I kept fighting until I got what I consider the most precious title in professional wrestling." And he ends by saying that Danielson will Danielson will take this title away from him over his dead body. 
I thought so, it was I thought it was a really good promo actually. Um Yeah, I did too. Actually. Although it is funny how breathy his promos are. He just really oh, yeah. likes he really likes to like breathe very audibly. <laughs> but you know, he was pumped for this promo. I think that that kind of yeah. tells you that like he was very intense and very, really trying to sell that like I'm not giving this up and almost a little resentful of Danielson like you think you could just come back here and you know take yeah. this like mild, no. mild, mildly heelish. Yeah. So uh that brings us to a different title match, the Ring of Honor pure title match for the night. Uh, Nigel McGuinness successfully defended the title against Roderick Strong when he beat him via pinfall in 12 minutes, 13 seconds after he hit the Tower of London. Uh, I'll just note quickly before I throw to you, Matt. Um, as always, we get to see the uh, the crowd cheer as the poor ref, Todd Sinclair, has to read out the rules for the pure title match. Uh Nigel grabs the mic and then tells the crowd to show some respect to the pure rules. Say so he's going to bring honor back to the ring of honor, pure title. The crowd then chant chants, shut the fuck up. And then Nigel says, I'm the best. There is the best there was, which prompts even bigger boost. And what made me laugh is right after that, they start chanting USA, which I thought was kind of funny because like, okay, yes, I guess it's like, Oh, it's a burn. Cause Nigel's not American, but it's like, they were doing that in response to him quoting the most famous wrestler ever from canada like boo how dare you insult this canadian usa usa this very canadian who was famous for an angle where he talked about how shitty the u.s was i'll so, always remember uh, wrestlemania 9 when it's bret hart against yokozuna and they're chanting usa and, and bobby heenan <laughs> and bobby heenan even points out on commentary how stupid that is <laughs> yeah so this wasn't quite on that level but it did kind of make me giggle when i was watching it so uh, Matt, what did you think about this match? Two guys that are really talented, and it's this—I guess the for, the start of Nigel's pure reign in the sense that this is his not—you know—he won on the last show, but this is his first defense of it. Yeah, Nigel is is now like a full heel, like finally, like you know, not like the most dastardly heel ever, ever at least not yet, but like a smarmy cheater who likes to taunt the crowd, and I enjoyed that. Um, so these two have another pure title match uh, in two thousand and six. That's fantastic. Um, at least that's how I remember it. I guess we'll see when we get to it. Um, this is not fantastic, but these two are so talented and I think they have good chemistry that even though they're not really trying to have a great match, I think the match ends up being pretty good. You know, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, the idea of the, the idea and Nigel will, you know, play this up throughout and he played it up in uh, some, even some of his matches against Joe is that Nigel is just good at manipulating the pure title rules. Um, like he, um, at one point, he um, he brings Roderick into the corner, like during in a hold, like a side headlock, and like that counts as Roderick's second rope break. Which, like, I don't know if that's really fair, but I, uh, it, you know, it's like Nigel playing the rules. You know, there's an uh, and he does. I think he does it again, where he just he keeps bringing Strong to the ropes to cause the rope breaks. I, I don't know, like maybe it doesn't reflect well on the ref. Um, at one point, Nigel does like a bunch of different angled European uppercuts, like kind of Claudio style, which I like. Um, you know, uh, eventually, you know, Roderick comes back with his backbreakers, hits a top rope superplex, hits the big double knees. But Nigel, he sneaks over Todd Sinclair's head with an eye rake, uh, then gets a sneaky closed fist, followed by the Tower of London and gets the win. Um, yeah, I think it's it was a, you know, a, just a pretty good match. You know, nothing, you know, nothing too amazing. Again, it's one of those undercard matches where they don't try, but they just, 
Nigel has so much personality here, and Strong is just has such solid execution that I think it just can't help but be a enjoyable match. And the crowd, the crowd was into it. Yeah, I, I thought this was again agree with you. I thought this was like low good, like like disappointing from these two guys. But like you said, these two guys are so talented. I think like even on their low end of what they're capable of, it's still a good match. And I also felt this was kind of like a Nigel's title win over Samoa Joe, where I felt like the emphasis was more on establishing Nigel as a heel than on having a great match. I didn't think that was even what, quite what they were aiming for. Like Nigel spends the entire first half of the match putting Roderick inside headlocks, and it's him playing a heel. You know, he's um, like I think a telling thing was. You know, early on, Roddy goes to chop Nigel, and Nigel blocks it, and he's like, there will be no chops tonight, which is it's great. It's a classic heel thing. You know, a heel's job is to prevent, try and stop a wrestler fr- from doing things the crowd wants to see. He's taking away the fun, and that's what Nigel does in this match. And, of course, that just makes the crowd want to see chops more. So when when Roderick does hit chops, the crowd really comes alive. You know, there's moments where um, Roderick has Nigel in the corner and he's throwing different strikes. And Nigel is just blocking them with his arm. He's just putting his arms up and, like, blocking them. And, you know, he he's playing kind of the defensive heel there, which I, which I enjoy, even if it doesn't make for as exciting a match as possibly can be. Um I I also uh I do think though you do see some action. I don't want to make it like in the in the second half particularly. I think Nigel does basically like every one of his big signature moves that you would want to see. Maybe Roderick doesn't get to do absolutely everything you would want to see from him, but by the end of the match he's in control and hitting some stuff. Um and as all as I have been seeing a lot lately from Nigel, I just forgot how especially in in the world of Ring of Honor how much weight his offense has like just simple stuff like his rebound Larry and European uppercuts. They just have a weight to them and a thud and that, that most wrestlers don't have in this promotion. And that's probably just because Nigel's bigger, but I think it's also because half of his offense at this point was still kind of the more intricate European British reversal stuff. And I think the contrast between like the big kind of hard hitting moves and that stuff, it makes, it makes each of them even more, cool on their spectrums like the the really intricate stuff seems more intricate because he's also throwing these big hard lariats and like the lariats and and european uppercuts seem harder because he's also this guy doing this more you know intricate neat little matt wizard stuff so i just thought nigel was a really cool package at this point in his career in terms of like everything he would do in a match um the ending i liked in theory more than in practice uh so yeah, Roderick has Nigel on the ropes, like literally Nigel is cl- on the mat clutching the bottom rope. He just starts kicking Nigel. The ref holds him back because like, hey, like he's on the ropes, don't kick at him. And as the ref is like holding Roderick back, Nigel pokes Roddy in the eyes. Strong is pissed. He lands a closed fist punch um, in full view of the ref. And so the ref sees this. He turns to tell the timekeeper to give Roddy a warning for using a closed fist. And as... um. <clears throat> As he's doing this, Nigel hits a close fist punch of his own, then hits the Tower of London and gets the win. So on paper, that sounds good, right? Because it's like it's classic heel move. You know, the heel cheats behind the ref's back. He gets the face to do something stupid in anger. The heel does the exact same thing, but because the ref doesn't see it, it works out for him. It's classic heel psychology. But I thought the problem was, while in the world of pure matches, 
like punches are illegal in the world of wrestling in general, like punches aren't this devastating move. So like the idea as shown by the fact that Nigel like sells the punch that Roddy hits him with for like one second before he returns fire. And it's, it's weird. Like, like, Oh, he cheated to win. Like technically he did, but his cheat was, I land one punch and hit my finisher. Like, again, it's another one of those matches, almost like the Jay lethal match where it feels like the heel should have been more nefarious to win. He should have cheated more. Then, then it comes away. It comes away like, oh, I punched you in the face, and and and, and I win. So that was a little weird. I, oh, the, my only other note on this match was on commentary when like referencing that Nigel's a little mocking of Bret Hart. You know, Dave Prezak says Ring of Honor is looking for an authority figure, and Nigel shouldn't piss off any potential candidates. And I just felt like, I mean. If I was them, I wouldn't have been teasing Bret Hart that way, knowing who's actually coming. Like, because that's a big name to tease, even in just a little way. Like, oh, you know, they shouldn't be, be Nigel shouldn't be pissing off, you know. In their defense, the hitman. I'm going to defend this. By the time this DVD came out, they had already introduced the uh, the the commissioner on a live show, and I don't know how big the ROH audience was of people who bought DVDs but didn't follow what was really happening already, but it was tiny. So, yeah. like, I don't think there was anyone who watched this DVD that didn't know that Brett was not the commissioner. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, you're 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 absolutely right there. Absolutely, it, it's a it's a minor thing. So, um, next we get a clip of James Gibson defending the Ring of Honor title against Roderick Strong in FIP, in which a Gabe voiceover calls a thirty minute classic. And Matt, as you've stated, and as I agree, we will never cover an FIP match on the show and we will have an opportunity if we had really wanted to on this show but we're not going to but from what I have heard I we have, like, imagine, imagine, imagine me saying yeah Trevor let's also add on another 30 minute match to this that we want to review <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, I, I am. I am thankful for that. For the, I, I'm in agreement, and am thankful to be in agreement with that. But I will say, I, I, I don't think I've seen this match, but I've definitely heard this being like this is one of the a standout FIP match. I believe it looked like the crowd days. like had like 80 people, which is like probably like the biggest crowd a, a, a FIP had during this era. So because like some of those other clips, it looks like there's like literally like less than 20 people there. You know what I mean? So it's and like it's, yeah. Didn't it sound like there was a lot of kids there too? Like yeah, you could well, see a few, yeah. but like it's funny to see. Like it looked like they were having like an, a Ring of Honor like hard hitting, right. you know, match, and you can hear just it's a bunch of kids screaming. Which I thought I hope kids like a thirty minute like chop and backbreaker fest. Well, I mean, I hey, guess I would have. Yeah, <laughs> I would have been looking for Doink. I would have been like, "Where's the clowns?" Literally, I would have been saying, "Matt, send in the clowns." But. uh <laughs> That brings us next up to – actually, a clown does get sent in because Colt Cabana comes out Ooh, nice. and he defeats uh, nice Homicide segue. by disqualification in 14 minutes, 29 seconds when Homicide throws a chair at him. So this is the first official match in the uh, Colt Cabana-Homicide feud. Um, and I would say uh, this was another low-good match. It's another match where – these two can do better, and they will do better. And it, this match very much felt like the first match in a feud where the hate isn't quite there yet. They're not pulling out all the stops yet or even close. It, it, you know, they're working this the way you work a match when you know you've got more more to come in the short term with each other. Um, 
the the capacitance the first couple of minutes doing nothing but joking like there's no wrestling he's just playing the crowd and joking around he's mocking julia smokes is yeah 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 yes and just all that and homicide is just doing this slow burn being pissed off by all the tomfoolery and it works out well enough as you can hear enough of cult to uh here that he's referencing homicide's attack on the last show so he's being funny but you can also hear him kind of like talk like he's expressing some annoyance about what homicide did to him so it's not just him being wildly like why is he being so funny when homicide attacked him in the parking lot like he's being funny but maybe with a little bit of an edge to it um and they, then they send to a battle, settle into a back and forth match. And I would say it's decent. There's a lot of exchanges I felt like these two had in this match that felt like they were just a little bit off, a little bit not on the same page. There were a bunch of hesitations where it looks like one guy was throwing, waiting for some guy to do the other guy to do something. There were some strikes that didn't look good. There were some obvious spot calling. Like at one point you could hear Colt audibly call like a clothesline. To, to homicide like really loudly and Colt's not a guy you usually hear that from. Yeah, it was, it was, was so he, it was so loud that I wa- almost was wondering if like if like that what the idea was that he was calling it for the crowd and not to the not to homicide because like and a guy like it with it with the level at the level of Colt Cabana at this point would know not to call a spot that loudly, right? Maybe that was a tribute to his recently departed friend CM Punk. Yeah. I'm going to throw in one really obvious spot call for yeah. my boy up in New York now, but um. There was even a weird spot. I don't know if I'm just over analyzing something, but like Colt hits the ropes and he hitched up like he stood there for a second, almost like he was waiting for Smokes to grab his leg. But Smokes wasn't even trying to do that. But I mean, it, there was just a few moments in the match like that where it's just like things just seem they're, they're not outright bodges, but just things where it feels like you're not quite having your your best night. Each of these guys Um Match is fine. And another ending I thought was a little bit off, just in the sense of the finishes, you know, Homicide brings a chair into the ring and he tries to uh, hit Colt with it. And and I, I felt it was weird because, like, the idea is supposed to be Homicide gets so frustrated he gets himself de- DQ'd. But it was weird because Homicide had gained control at that point. He hit an ace crusher. Colt was down. And then he decides, well, this is the point. I'm going to grab a chair. And then they go in the ring, you know, they fight for the chair, and at that point, you know, Smokes comes in the ring, Colt lays him out, and then Homicide throws the chair at him and gets the DQ, and, like, not even trying to hide it from the ref. And, and I and I felt like it just felt kind of arbitrary, and I felt like it's another finish. You know, this night, it seems like the pattern is I'm having problems with a lot of these finishes. I felt like maybe either Homicide should have been a little – had more of a reason to be frustrated or desperate or should have tried to hide that he was doing it and then got caught. But instead, it just kind of comes off like, eh – Time to get DQ'd. Throw the chair. DQ. Yeah, um, so, first of all, um, Colt started by doing like a dog face gremlin, like Rick Steiner, like barking shtick. And I was like, maybe he can be um, Braun Brecker's new partner. Um, I guess, <laughs> but no, I guess he was mocking the concept of Rottweilers. So, actually, I've never actually seen Braun Brecker like wrestle. Like, I just heard, read the name. Is it pronounced Brecker or Breaker? Breaker. Braun Breaker. So, so if he was uh, Braun Breaker's partner, um, sidekick, would he be like the dog-faced gremlin's gremlin? Would that be like... Sure. Let's take that. <laughs> the dog-faced gremlin's gremlin. I like it. Let's edit, the, let's edit that out. Let's edit that no, no. So I... Um, so it's funny because like whenever Homicide is in New York City or even like the Jersey, like outside of the city in Jersey, the crowd loves him. And I did not get the sense of that here at all. I guess they're just far enough away from New York City that Homicide does not have that hometown crowd advantage. Um, but 
like you said, like he, uh, Cabana and Smokes are doing their yapping at each other. Um, and Smokes at one point, Smokes was on tonight. He took off his shirt to fan homicide. <laughs> and you don't see that sight every day. And the crowd actually would chant, put your shirt on at him, which, you know, why? You know, it's wrestling. Guys walk around <laughs> without shirts on. That's what they do in wrestling. Um, but I agree with you The uh, that the match was, you know, it was like they're good enough that it was decently entertaining. But, yeah, it was um, – it was it never got to a super high level and, like, things were just a little bit awkward at different points. But the thing that stuck out to me, I don't know whether to be happy that they finally gave a DQ for a chair shot or really annoyed at how inconsistent they are because we've established many, many times that chairs are legal in ROH. People just randomly hit each other with chairs in normal matches all the time. Has there been a chair shot DQ that you could remember previous to this in ROH? I'm not sure, but this was clearly by design. Like, this inconsistency is by design because the Observer wrote about this finish, quote, There will be DQs and screw jobs on every show to build up the arrival of a new authority figure type character. So, clearly, that's why all of a sudden now it's a DQ. I also but- think it's probably like. Have you ever seen a promotion promoter before, like, put out the word in, like, um, a newsletter, like, hey, everybody, we're going to be having screw jobs and shit finishes on the next few shows, everybody. Get ready. I guess they, I guess they thought, like, he needed to make that disclaimer just to, just for people to be able to realize, like, okay, they're going somewhere with this. They're not just yeah. using a booking crutch. But I don't, does that make sense, though, that they would need to have DQs for the authority figure? You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't it make more sense if, like, there's no DQs for that and the authority figure comes in to say, okay, we have to tighten up the rules? Does that, right? Doesn't that make sense? Like, if if the refs are letting people get away with it, that's when you need the authority figure. Yeah, yeah, it's, in a way, it's admirable, but in a way, it's kind of, kind of weird, like, the idea that between this and the Jay Lethal thing, like, they are purposely trying to, like, be kind of shitty in weird ways to to justify bringing in an authority figure. It's one of those weird things where, like, when you think, like, most Ring of, I mean, all Ring of Honor fans, basically, you know, are very knowledgeable of the inside workings of wrestling. Like, they're not, it's hard for them to suspend disbelief. So it's weird, like, they're purposely making things out of control so they can bring somebody in to make things go go back into control. Like, it's, it's only in pro wrestling. It's such a weird thing to think about. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe Gabe just decided, like, we just need something different, but, like, it's not like anyone was jonesing for our ways to have, like, an on-screen commissioner, right? Like, it's not like that was a thing that we all wanted. And, you know, you know, I guess what Cornette's, you know, value added was, like, he was doing a lot of promos during that CZW feud, which we'll talk about when we get to it. But I feel like mostly the pr- Cornette promos, and I like Cornette's promos, but, like, to me, they mostly added things for, like, the Dave Meltzers of the world, the people that, like, like the older fans who, like, really loved, you know, the old school guys, because, like... I never thought that Cornette was the best spokesperson for ROH. You know what no. I mean? So, like, I just, I don't know. I just don't think that it was a necessity, like, to the point, to the point where it's like we want to bring in this authority figure so bad that we're going to start booking shit finishes. Like, I don't know. That didn't seem so necessary to me. But, like I said, I guess when you're a booker, you just got to come up with new things to do. So, I guess I can't complain too much. But, you know, this show is about nitpicking, so, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, did you have any other thoughts about the match? Because we kind of got off on a sidetrack, or, or no, were you good there? I'm good with the match. Oh, yeah, there, there's a, this is honestly, that's a good review of the matches. There's not that much to say. It's just kind of a back-and-forth, nondescript, not a big story to it, other than just the percolating of the feud. Um, the Torch wrote about this. 
Longtime Ring of Honor regular Colt Cabana is in the midst of a more prominent push. Known mainly for comedy segments and his on-air alliance with CM Punk for years, he is in the midst of a more serious feud with Homicide. Gabe Sapolsky tells The Torch that the feud can be a big part of Ring of Honor in coming months. Quote, I think the Cabana versus Homicide feud has as much potential as any feud we've ever done, Sapolsky says. There's a real clash of personality and backgrounds there, and that always makes for the best feuds. They also have great chemistry in the ring, as proven by their match down in FIP a few months ago. Cabana has really grown into a main eventer in recent months, and he has come through huge with every opportunity given to him. So, you know, it is like I do agree about they have a good clash of personalities, but it is funny like they talk about the chemistry because again here I thought this was a match where it felt like they just weren't quite clicking at least on this one night, and that can happen to anybody. But oh, and one other note I thought about I forgot about the match. How often do you ever see this match where Homicide does a regular tope, like not the big tope con hilo? Yeah, like that's pretty rare from Homicide. Normally, if he's doing it, he's doing the whole thing. And here he just does a very standard one. So it's weird. It's interesting. I wonder if it was just Homicide didn't feel like he would do it or he didn't feel like he had enough clearance. Although yeah. that usually doesn't even stop Homicide because a lot of times he'll do it and end up in the first row. Like he doesn't give a shit. He's just crazy. But, Although I kind of like that. Like I like that he does something different. Like, you know, unexpected. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, you go with like, you just go with the, the standards playing the hits all the time and it gets a little boring. So it's, you know, it's good to change it up every once in a while. Yeah, it, it was surprising. Um, after the match, Homicide and Smokes continue to attack Cabana until Cabana ducks a clothesline attempt. He lays them out with a double clothesline of his own. Colt then goes to hit Smokes with the Colt 45 when Grim Reefer, who Ring of Honor announcer still and will never name, comes in. He hits Colt with a top rope clothesline. Ricky Reyes also joins in, but Colt is able to avoid a Grim Reefer top rope splash. He lays him out with a clothesline. Colt grabs the chair and Homicide bigs off until Loki attacks him from behind. They start to put the boots to Colt when Samoa Joe runs in to fight off the Rottweilers. The Rottweilers all flee, and Joe and Cabana meet them in the aisleway, with Joe hitting smokes with a chair. Cabana's chasing Homicide to the back. Key is left alone in the ring, and he grabs the mic. He stares at Joe, who is standing alone in the aisle at this point. Key goes, hey, Joe, which for some reason, low-key doing that made me laugh. Uh, we get a Samoa Joe chant, then a low-key chant, then another Samoa Joe chant. Crowd going back and forth here. Key says if Joe hasn't gotten the memo, he's back in Ring of Honor. Joe crosses his arms and just grins at, at this. Uh, Key says Joe would cease to exist without him. Crowd chants bullshit at that. Key says every Ring of Honor champ would cease to exist without him. So for someone to claim that the champ is here without beating him, Key's here to, here to inform him that the real champ is here. Uh, Joe at this point starts to walk to the ring. When Jay Lethal runs back to ringside, his head is all wrapped up in a bandage. Uh, Joe tries to stop him, but Lethal is having none of it. He just kind of pushes Joe away. Key asks Lethal if he wants some more. He asks the crowd if they want some more. The crowd's kind of into seeing more. Uh, Key says he'd love nothing more than to beat the piss out of Jay. He already did it once tonight. He and, Lee, uh, he and Lethal at this point start throwing punches. The bell rings immediately and prompt do matches on just the Matt Feuerstein's in special to make – they knew you were there late, Matt. I was um, I was responsible for the – because you said the crowd kind of wants to see some more. I was responsible for all of the positive reaction to that request. You could literally hear you yelling, I, I missed the first one. You yeah. could do it again. It's, it's all new to me. So um, Jay Lethal defeats Loki via pinfall in nine minutes, 19 seconds after he hit a top rope dragon suplex. So, yeah, Matt, this I'm sure we'll talk about the match and this is where we can really get into the booking. So 
this is the second match. I mean, it's, it's weird. Do we just review this as a second match or do we just kind of add it into the first one? Because it's, it, it's only nine minutes, but well, it is basically a second match. It's a second match. I mean, there's so much difference in, you know, gap in between. I mean, this one's different because Lethal's wearing a headband um, or head bandage. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it is much more of an angle than a match, right? Like it's, I mean, it yeah. is a match, like, but it's, you know, they do moves and stuff, but it's, it's really all about the angle, you know? So as far as the match goes, like it's, I think it's entertaining, but it's not, you know, it's nothing like the first one. You know, they, they don't even try to do that. You know, it's it's just, it's it's really a set, you know, they, they do, they trade big chops, you know, lethal fires up this time, goes, come on, motherfucker, and they have a big chop battle, and the chops are hard, and they get some near falls, but it's not like it's a match that really builds, right? It's, it's all about, you know, a lot of focus on the people outside the ring, like Joe in particular, eventually the other Rottweilers come out, Lee, uh, Cabana comes out. Makes me wonder though, why wasn't Joe just out there with Lethal in the first place in the first match? Wouldn't that have been good for moral support? Um, yeah, if Joe's you know willing to do it in the first place. Um, but you know, like the crowd does get into it. I, um, you know, I mean, what it really ends up um, as is this whole big thing where um, everybody's fighting on the outside. You know, Joe fights off Homicide and Reyes, and that distracts the crowd from lethal kicking out of the double stomp, which is not necessarily good, but whatever. Um, uh, Loki avoids the dragon and goes for a springboard kick, but lethal catches him and hits the dragon for two and lethal kick. Um, when, when Loki kicks out, that gets one of the bigger pops. So that time the crowd was paying attention and then Cabana comes out and they're, and he's fighting with homicide and Reyes and Joe hits homicide with the chair and lethal goes for another dragon, but, he spins around and round and round until he sends Lethal out to the floor. And then Loki teases doing a dive to the floor off the top rope. And then Cabana sends Homicide into the ring post, I guess, causing it to like vibrate and Loki <laughs> crotches himself. And that's when Lethal comes in and hits the top rope dragon suplex and gets the pin on that. And Lethal yells, I did it! I did it! Like, very on the nose. Um, but the... Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's the it's it's a cool chaotic scene, I think, and I enjoyed seeing it live. I was very excited that I got to see that match, not realizing that the match that I missed was a lot better. But um, still, it was you know I got to see like the big angle finish. But yeah, very convoluted, right? Like, why have Lethal lose in the first place? I, it's like, was it to get Loki back? Um, was the idea like, oh, Loki gets back reinstated, and then Lethal can actually have the win too, or was it something where Loki said like, I won't. I won't lose unless I get to win first. Like, which of like which of those two scenarios is it? Like, because I think it's one of them. And yeah, it was just you didn't need to do all that. Like, just have Loki reinstated because the new commissioner says we we have another chance, or have him beat somebody else on a different show. Like, it's not that complicated to have find a way around that. Um, obviously, the point of this feud was to get Lethal over Big. I don't think that Lethal losing to Loki necessarily stopped him from getting over like i but it was totally unnecessary um and i yeah i just it makes me wonder what the point of all of it was other than to let me see the match again um i i really do wonder now the thing is in the long run it doesn't really matter that much because neither loki or jay lethal are in ring of honor for that much longer like they're both there for another like four, four or five months after this and then they're gone, like mostly for good, um, for you know very different reasons. Um, but Lethal even turns heel a couple months after this, and it's like, 
did was the lethal experiment just a failure? Did they have that plan all along? It does make me wonder, like, if the booking of this ended up doing Jay Lethal a little bit dirty in the end. And I'm not really sure. It's hard to say even now, in hindsight. Yeah, um, it's funny, because I feel like the match and the booking are almost two different things. Because the match, like, it's not a full match. It's not as good as the opener, I agree. But I do think there's some really good intensity, and you get some big moments that are fun. Like, obviously, this is the match where... You know, you get the big kickouts of the finishes where Lethal kicks out of the Tree of Woe double stomp and, and Low Key kicks out of the Dragon Suplex, and those are huge moments. But I, and I, I like that first exchange where it's really intense, like you said, where, you know, Low, you know, uh, there's, there's a sequence where Lethal kicks Key in the back and Key gets up. He's kind of like bemused by it, and then he just slaps Lethal super hard in the face and kicks him in the back. And there's some really cool, intense stuff like that. But, so much of this match ends up being a backdrop for Homicide and Colt Cabana brawling with – I mean I mean, Cabana and Homicide brawling and Joe and Lee, and uh, Smokes brawling on the outside. In fact, and to your – like you said, you, in the middle of the match, Jay Lethal kicks out of the top rope double stomp, which was the biggest move Key had at this point. And it's like the camera cuts to the near fall – at like the last second while homicide is brawling on, I mean, I mean, Joe is brawling on the outside. And in fact, even when they cut back, they cut back to a hard cam shot where like Joe is brawling in the, in the foreground and they're in the background. And it feels like a lot of the second half of, the, of this match, the crowd's like paying half attention to it and half attention to the brawl on the outside. And then we get to the end, like you said, where it's basically key slipping on a banana peel. Cause you know, Lethal's hurt. He's on the floor. Key's teasing, doing a top rope double stop from the top to the floor, and then Colt throws Hamasa into the tur- into the ring post. Loki does the uh, shaky legs and crotches himself. Lethal hits the dragon suplex for the win, like you said, and it, it just like it uh, it's it doesn't it, it feels like he lost clean to Key, and he got like fluked out a win because one of his friends like helped him out inadvertently when when he was at like his worst moment and even the commentary for this match i felt like you could tell listening to commentary for this match that they were told to really put in the hard sell for jay lethal here like they're talking about they're going really big putting him over almost too big at points like there's a moment where the crowd is chanting for low key and then they're chanting for samoa joe and the announcers at that moment they immediately talk about the crowd is behind jay lethal and it came off almost wwe-ish in the worst way where the announcers sometimes they're pushing the story that the promotion's trying to tell even though it's being directly contradicted by what we're actually seeing as fans and ring of honor usually doesn't do that it felt like it, we're doing that here and again it goes back to that thing where it's not like the crowd hated jay lethal it's just just like of all the people that were in the ring or outside of the ring at this point, he was the least over. Like they like Colt more, they like Homicide more. Well, they like well, Joe Ricky, more. Ricky Reyes was the least over. <laughs> okay, other other than Reyes, other, okay, other than Reyes, he's higher than Reyes. Maybe Smokes, maybe not even though. Um, and yeah, I just it, it does not get him over. And, and, and I will say this, like. I don't think there's anything they could have done to get Jay Lethal over 
in 2005 as a top player because I feel like he just wasn't ready yet. He was already a good wrestler, but he wasn't quite at the level of having show-stealing DVD-selling main event-level matches. He didn't have the mic skills or the charisma yet, and there's that's no big fault on him because he was young, and he would get that stuff as time moved on. And, you know, a lot of wrestlers, it takes time. That's the last part to get. We've talked about that with, with the Briscoes, and we've talked about with Rocky Romero, where we've seen early Ring of Honor appearances from them, and we point out, like, boy, these guys surely, like, sure got a lot more charisma as they got older. So it's far from uncommon. But that being said... I do think this is probably one of Gabe's biggest booking missteps in that they, they booked, like, he just comes off looking so weak where he, it's a feud where he loses every time. He gets absolutely dominated in some of those matches. He finally calls out the heel tonight, like, I want a match right now. He loses that clean. He, he, he has an impromptu rematch and he wins that by basically a outside interference fluke. And this is supposed to be like the big home run. He's finally done it. He's slayed the dragon. He's beaten the guy. And and the other thing I'll mention, I think, also worked against him, is they did yet again in the, in that in that Joe Key sequence I talked about that happened before the match. Jay Lethal interrupting, I think, was also a bad booking move if you want Lethal to be over as a face because you're literally teasing one of the matches that Ring of Honor fans want to see more than any other at this point, which is another Joe versus Key match. And Lethal comes in and is like, hold on. I'd ra- I want to face Low Key now. And that like, that was a reaction that I had too. Like, man, like watching that early part of that angle with Low Key and Joe squaring off, I was like, man, I really want to see that match in 2005. And obviously we never get it. But like, yeah, I, that was, I'm sure, what the crowd was thinking too. Just like, oh yeah, we're going to get Joe and Low Key. And then it's like, nope. Yeah, and it's going to what I said with in the Nigel Roderick match where the heel's job is to like take away things that the fans want to see to prevent them. He's trying to prevent them things from the, the fans would like to see from happening. You know, the face is supposed to do the opposite. They're supposed to do nothing but give you the things you want to see. And in that moment, unintentionally, Lethal's being a heel. He's he's preventing you from seeing. I mean, sure they would like they sure they liked seeing Lethal and Key a second time, but he's preventing them from seeing the thing they really would want to see, which is Key and Joe. It's also a thing where, like, I can appreciate what what Gabe was doing because, like, they what they also reference on commentary is like, hey, remember when uh, Samoa Joe's first match in Ring of Honor was at Glory by Honor one, and where he lost to a low key clean in a fight without honor. And so I like, like, one thing Gabe often tries to do with his booking that I appreciate as a real wrestling nerd is he's into that symbolism and he's into like referencing history like that. Like, I like the idea that. Jay Lethal, Samoa Joe's protege, does something that Lo- Samoa Joe has never been able to do, which is beat Low Key, and he does it in front of him at the fourth Glory by Honor, which is you know the first Glory by Honors where Joe loses to Low Key. I love all that symbolism. It's just the execution of it leaves a lot to be desired. And um, it was very this entire angle was very well intentioned, but I think it was just yeah the wrong the wrong group of guys the wrong pair of guys. And it just it didn't it just didn't work in the end. It's like what I said with the Austin Aries Azrael match, where you go in that match thinking Azrael's a lower card guy and lower mid card guy, and you come away convinced of that. I think you go into this feud with Jay Lethal thinking, oh, he's a nice mid card guy, but he's not on the levels of the Samoa Joes or the Low Keys or the Homicides. And at the end of the feud, I think that's not that all that is is, is it's reinforced. Like you go. He's a good mid-card guy, but he's not as over or not as cool as these other guys, which is – I don't – I have to feel like that wasn't the point of this. 
Well, I know, like you said, he leaves within a few months, but I have to feel when Gabe went to all this trouble, the point of this feud was to end with Lethal being at a higher position than he was before. And I feel like he's kind of in the same position he was when it started. But Yep, completely. <clears throat> we, we go to a couple notes on this, actually. Um, the first is The Observer. Dave wrote, Loki and Lethal had two matches on this show, with Loki winning the first one. They came back after a brawl later in the show for a rematch that Lethal won, which was done just to show people Loki would do a job. Which, again, Matt, I think that's really weird wording. Like, because like, that acts like, oh, well, he didn't really need to do that. The whole point of this feud was Loki loses, I mean, wins all the time. Like, like it would have been weird if Lethal did not win one match in this feud. Like, and also, does it really show that Loki's. Le- like that's I guess that's the other big question here is is this the only way they could have done this? In other words, would Loki had would Loki have refused if it had been done any more cleanly than this? Like, I mean, another not only would he have, did he? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, yeah. we'll go to a Pat McNeil did a review of this in this show in The Torch, and he wrote about it. When Loki is in Ring of Honor, he does jobs sparingly, if at all. Rumor has it that Loki's bosses in pro wrestling Noah don't want him losing to non-name Ring of Honor talent. Or maybe Loki doesn't like doing jobs. Plus, Loki has a cultivated reputation as an extremely difficult wrestler for promoters to deal with. In any case, a number of insider fans on the Ring of Honor website message boards were openly doubting that Mr. Key would ever suffer a pinfall or submission loss in ring of honor so i mean that was the thought this time and i guess the thought i guess maybe gabe's thought was probably that no matter how lethal wins just that he beat him at all would be a big deal just because he had that reputation i do i do do think that's true though and uh, the funny thing is though like he did lose occasionally. Like, didn't we see him he, in 2004? He did that weird, like, out of nowhere clean loss to Matt, to uh, Mark Briscoe. Like, he would lose occasionally. He would just, oh, like, that's weird. He would just do that. And obviously that was right before the Briscoes decided to leave wrestling for a while. But it, it's just weird. The whole thing is weird. But um, after the match, the announcers scream that this is the biggest win of Lethal's career. Jay himself screams, I did it. And then as if to prove the point that I was just talking about, you can clearly hear someone in the crowd shout back to Lethal, it took you two times. And Lethal then says, I did it multiple times again. And you can hear just, the fan just, two, again. just two on the nose for me. Yeah, the fan again says, two times back. And uh, Lethal celebrates in the ring as the Rottweilers drag a limp low-key to the back. So, yeah, it's another thing where he's so – this is clearly like he's selling this so big. It's like he won the Super Bowl to the point where you expect him to say, you know, he's going to go to Disneyland next. And it, it was not clean enough to warrant that level of excitement. Like if you want him to have that big of a reaction, I feel like he needed to win a little more decisively than how he did. Um, in this intermission, we go backstage to Gary Michael Capetta with Nigel McGuinness. Gary says, Nigel's win tonight was questionable. Nigel says it's the pure title, and he won the most pure way possible with a wrestling hole, the Tower of London. And Nigel says he's the best pure wrestler in the world, and that Gary's glasses don't work if he thinks otherwise. He ends by saying that the pure title is staying right here in England, which is funny because he's cutting the promo in Long Island, New York. Gary checks his own glasses like he's actually taking what Nigel says seriously. He's like, no, they work fine, and he tells Nigel to try them. And then Nigel actually puts on Gary's glasses and he goes, bloody hell, it's like Mr. Magoo. Which was and great, I just great, my notes, great delivery. Yeah, I, I wrote my notes, Gary's adorable, we need a Gary and Nigel buddy cop movie. I, I thought this was just adorable chemistry here. And uh, 
just just charming stuff. So next up we have uh, Davey Andrews defeating Eric Matlock via submission in two minutes twenty eight seconds using the stretch the stretch plum. Uh, every every time you say, every time you say Eric Matlock's name, I just can't help but think of Grandpa Simpson. He would be his favorite wrestler. <laughs> it, it, it was always time for Matlock in the uh, Abe Simpson household. Um, so he uses the stretch plum. There's some name for it that Prezak says, but he, he kind of gets talked over, or or and so he can't really make it out. It was I think I think the an honorable mention guys on their podcast said something. It's like the sudden in sudden in so the initials for it work out to SIDS, as in sudden infant death syndrome. So uh, oh, always, always a good a thing. That we, thing always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's bring that up on every episode of our podcast. Sounds like something <laughs> that people would enjoy. <laughs> um. So I, I this was fine, but pointless. Uh, Matlock was a guy from the West Coast who had been, who was in uh in the Northeast for a few months trying to break through there, and I don't think he did. But if you like look at KHS during this time, he was working a bunch in the Northeast Indies at this point. Um. Matlock, Matlock gets uh, most of the match, then Andrews hits a German suplex, a final cut, and a stretch plum. And as always with these, I just wrote my notes. I have no idea who this helps because, like, if you're looking to evaluate Matlock as a talent, you're not going to learn a lot in two minutes. If you're looking to get Andrews as a student, a Ring of Honor student experience, again, he's not going to get much ring time with two minutes. If you're looking to get Andrews or by proxy the Ring of Honor school over, a two-minute squat, two-minute match isn't going to work as evidenced by the fact that the fans booed when Andrews won the match. Like, it just, it helped nobody. It, it did nothing for the show. It didn't make the show better. It didn't hurt the show. It just no, – there, there's no, no – no one gains from this, I feel like. Nobody. Not the school, not the wrestlers. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> got, got nothing to add. <laughs> um, and Matt Luck! I was, I was trying to be Abe Simpson there, but I can't do the voice. Anyway, go on. That brings us to the four-corner survival match. Samoa Joe defeated Adam Pierce, BJ Whitmer, and Ricky Reyes in 1838 when he made Whitmer pass out in the rear naked choke. So the story of this match was it was Adam Pierce's Ring of Honor debut. We could talk about some quotes about him in a minute, but um this was different than a four than most four ways. Uh most four-way, like this four-way, it was one of those four-ways that happens occasionally where they basically decide, you know what, we don't want to do a four-way. We want to wrestle this like a tag match because after a brief opening exchange between uh, Whitmer and Reyes, uh, the, the most of the match is uh, something very rare, which is Samoa Joe selling for Reyes and Pierce for like a long portion of the match, the body of the match. He eventually makes a comeback. He tags out to Whitmer. Whitmer makes a very brief comeback, and then Joe tags himself back in. Then they do the that's bit my, of the everybody. That's my ROH pet peeve, as I said before, which is someone makes a hot tag. Then they're back in the ring in like a minute or less. It happens a lot in ROH, and it drives me insane. To Joe's credit here, he uh, does sell kind of being still hurt while he's on his comeback. But yeah, I noticed that too. And it's also interesting because most of the time I've noticed, especially in this year, when Joe's in a four-way, he kind of uses that as a chance to kind of take a semi-night off. Like he he just comes in for a few big spots. Most of this match is Joe, he, and it's, most of it's him selling. So it's it's a lot of it's, it's Joe in a way you're not used to seeing him in a couple ways, both the selling and the fact that he's wrestling, he's doing the lion's share of the work in this four-way. Um, 
Adam Pierce, of course, if you have not seen Adam Pierce as a wrestler, he's a total throwback. There's no one on the Ring of Honor roster quite like him. He's constantly arguing with the crowd. He's all about the crowd work. He's constantly, you know, shit talking his opponents, talking to the ref. He's doing the most old school cheating. He's getting the advantage on Joe with things like eye gouges and choking him with his wrist tape. His offense even is a lot of simple stuff. Fist drops, you know, he does do one belly to belly on Joe, which looked cool. Um, how much you enjoy Adam Pierce will de- totally depend on how much you enjoy that throwback style. For me, it feels out of place in Ring of Honor, but I kind of enjoyed it on this night because I hadn't seen it in so long, and it was refreshing in the sense of it is different from what everyone else was doing. But I do feel like as we rewatch all his matches, it's, it's one of those things where like I don't I like old school wrestling, but like if I want to see great old school wrestling, I'll watch like eighties NWA. I won't. Like Adam Pierce doing it as like kind of a pastiche, like a shtick of it, you know. It, it, it if I want to see the best stuff, I'll see the best stuff. But I do appreciate it in this small dosage here, um, that we just haven't seen it in a while. And uh, yeah, I would say overall the match is slightly above average. I think some people would like this match less than me, but again, just because it was different in structure and having the Adam Pierce thing. I, I appreciate it as someone that's watching everything in ring of honor in order all over again, but overall, nothing special. I would say. Um, yeah, I, I think I did like the match less than you. I liked, I liked the early part of the match a lot where it was Adam Pierce doing shtick. Um, but once it got into just like Reyes and then, uh, you know, and Pierce beating on Joe, you know, and the Reyes stuff was way less entertaining, and I just I thought it ended up getting pretty boring for a while, and I didn't think the action that they did after like the hot tag sequence really made up for that. So I think the match was was pretty dull, but I really liked the beginning. The thing is about Pierce, um, like I actually will maybe object a little bit to the concept that he's a total throwback because I feel like what he is is almost a parody of old school stuff, at least here, because. Old school, you can't be like an old school guy, but like just constantly like be saying fuck all the time, like which is what he would do, like shut the fuck up, sit the fuck down, like just like that's not old school wrestling. I'm sorry, um, like and he was doing a lot of comedy, which I don't think someone like Pierce would have been as comedy oriented in the old days. You know, like if he if he shows up in like Memphis in 1975, like I don't think that character is meant to be so funny. You know, I think he's still meant to be like a dastardly heel. Here he's really meant to be funny to the point where at the beginning when they're doing the handshakes, Pierce holds holds out his hand for Reyes and goes, "Come on." And then he, you know, he yells a homophobic slur at him. But then right after that, the crowd starts chanting another homophobic chant, Pierce sucks dick. Like they start chanting that at him. Yeah. But then he goes, "That doesn't matter." And then uh, right? I wrote the, I wrote my notes. Oh, sorry, you go on. I was going to say, is he homophobic or is he progressive? Which one is it? I, yeah, I wrote my notes after, right after that. You know, he goes from the crowd. He goes from calling Ricky Reyes the f word slur to saying so that doesn't matter to a pure sex disc chat. And then I wrote my notes. I don't know if I've ever seen a shift from homophobia to acceptance that quickly. <laughs> yeah. like, like to go from actively pushing for it to against it like like it was it was a strangely mature response like so that doesn't matter like like it was when he had just said a slur like it was so weird yeah and then like at one point during the match joe grabs the mic and is like 
Adam Pierce just admitted that he sucks dick or something like, you know, just like they're yeah. really playing up the homophobia again, not the only time someone does that on the mic on this show. Um, they're really into it on this show. Like there was another moment where like Pierce is going to do a test of strength with Joe and he points to his hand and he goes, this is where the power lies, Joe. <laughs> and then does like a Hogan arm pose, like really, really close to just being a pure comedy shtick. So that's why I say it's like, at least here, it's almost a parody of old school. Like, obviously, he has the robe. He comes out to Freebird. But you get what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. it's, it's like, it's not really exactly what they would have done, you know? And I, I don't think it's like the modern version either. I think it's just the comedy version. But I do think that Pierce maybe relied on the F word a little bit too much. And I don't mean the one that he called Reyes. Um, um, but, like, the other thing that I thought was funny, like, because you, you were talking about the uh, authority figure stuff. Like, it's just funny because Adam Pierce, he kept poking Joe in the eyes like over and over and over again. And it's like, if you're going to do disqualifications, you should disqualify the guy who pokes someone in the eyes constantly because or else then like, like that's just legal then, right? Like why not just do that for all your moves? But all the referee says at any point is knock it off, which is like, <laughs> yeah, what a great enforcer that, that the ref is like that. That makes the ref seem stupid. Um, but he does that a lot. Um, Another weird thing I noticed on commentary as I was talking about how, you know, everyone watches these shows, knows what's going on outside of the DVD continuity. But they were still on this show trying to act like the Kobashi deal wasn't signed yet. They were like, we're in, we're in negotiations with major Japanese stars to come in. Wait till you see who we're in negotiations with. And it's like the Kobashi match was announced like way before this. Um, at uh, a show yeah. way earlier. Yeah, like a, a show, few shows back. On a Long Island show, in fact, his coming in was. And it's like, why pretend that it wasn't? Like, what's the point of having the, that, like, different continuity? Like, what's, what are they trying to do? Like, it, does, it doesn't make any sense to me. It just it seems, like, pointless and annoying. Like, Especially because if you got the DVD, if for some reason we're seeing it and someone loaned it to you, wouldn't you want to get the word out? Like, hey, Kenta Kabashi's coming to Ring of Honor. You should, you, you want, you should check that DVD out, you know, like – it's keeping it like a secret like this, like it's a shoot secret, is weird. Yeah, I mean, anything that like, be, like, be, like begs credibility like that, where it's like, just like be honest, like it doesn't, like this isn't a storyline. Just, just say what's going on. Like, why make up a whole fake thing? It, it just irritates me. But anyway, um, as far as the match, you know, uh, once the, you know, and once they um, got you know past the early stuff with Pierce and Joe, I thought it was boring. You know, I just. I just wasn't enjoying it. I um, the other thing that I noticed was Lacey was out again, and she was looking at all four guys, and the guy that she ends up picking to be part of Lacey's Angels is the guy who does the least in the match and loses the fall by being choked out. Explain that one. If if <laughs> if, La- if Lacey was gonna like if they were gonna have a thing where Lacey is out to like scout and choose BJ Whitmer, they could at least have her come out for a match that he wins. Right. Yeah. It, it is weird. Like of all the, like, and also like, couldn't you have scouted the whole show? Like, it seems weird. Yeah. Like, like you watch it so that you come away going, the person I want is the guy who like one of the people that lost tonight got choked out <laughs> and, and his partner who does not work tonight. Yes. I mean, granted they are the tag team champions, but so that's important, but you could you didn't but, but need to that, scout yeah, to learn yeah, that. Yeah, that was a waste of note taking then. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
I also I did think it was cute before the match. Um, uh, Whitmer had Todd Sinclair do the tag team pose that Jimmy would do with him because Jimmy wasn't there this night. I thought that was cute. That was that was a highlight. Yes. But uh, so a couple notes on Adam Pierce. Uh, let me just see here. Yeah, uh, we we got here. Uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote. Ring of Honor is utilizing new top indie names to fill the gap left by recent departures, most notably recent champ CM Punk and James Gibson. Jimmy Yang and Adam Pierce are two noteworthy additions. Regarding Pierce, a West Coast standout indie talent, Sapolsky tells the Torch why he's happy with his acquisition. Quote, I loved his first Ring of Honor match, he says. Adam isn't the kind of guy who comes out and does a million flips or flashy moves. He is as old school as it gets and can cut great promos and pull off angles. We really need promo and angle guys now, and Pierce is great at both. He wasn't meant to come in and blow people away at first, but he is a guy that can grow in this company. And then we'll I, 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 think, oh, that's, I think that's true, by the way. But is that true that Pierce is a West Coast indie standard? I thought he was more of a Midwest guy. I think he worked. Um, West I, mean, I, Coast. I mean, I know he worked West Coast, but like, is that really like his his home region? I mean, I know he's from Chicago. I think, but I, and, and, I, I don't and, know. And I know, and I know he like you know did a lot of stuff with like Punk and Cabana in those early days. So I don't know. And it is funny, like I, it is weird reading these quotes, knowing that the future of Ring of Honor in a few years is. Gabe gets fired as Booker and Adam Pierce is his replacement. Like basically Gabe hired his replacement, but I know, I don't think there's hard feelings because in fact, there is a, there is an RF video shoot interview that is Gabe Sapolsky and, um, and, and Adam Pierce talking like a few that was recorded a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, well, and, it's, it's Adam Pierce isn't the one that fired Gabe, you know, like, ex- exactly. And, and what's makes that what even weirder, the moderator for that is Matt Stryker, not, uh, not unibrow Matt Stryker, but like WWE couple of matches in ring of honor, Matt Stryker. It's like such a weird thing. It's, it's a, it's an RF video shoot release. So it was after like Gabe and Rob patched things up to some degree done by Matt Stryker, Adam Pierce and Rob and, and Gabe talking about like, what was like booking Ring of Honor? It's definitely if you're a hardcore Ring of Honor fan, it's worth a watch. It is, it is a, it is just a weird little piece of, uh, of something. It's a weird piece of something. Yeah, I never watched that one. You know, that's something that I would like to see. They, so uh, the Observer wrote they also had a four corner match with Samoa Joe winning over Adam Pierce, B.J. Whitmer, and Ricky Reyes. Not a good match, and Joe sold most of the way before winning. There was a mixed response to Pierce. It really depends on what you want out of your wrestling. Pierce's is a Zabisco style walk around and yell at the crowd '70s heel that was the kind of heel most fa- uh, fans tired of and had become passe in the '80s. Of course, now there are very few people with this style, and perhaps what is old can become new. Still people didn't take to him like that on his first appearance and so it is sort of the antithesis antithesis of what fans who attend ring of honor expect out of the show i guess the idea is that by doing so it'll make him a real heel the question is if it'll be the right or wrong kind of real heel gabe sapolsky has major plans for him but recognizes it may take a while for him to get over so yeah like um it, it, it's funny because, you know, the talk, you know, from Gabe and this quote are both like, oh, we got big plans for him. Like he's a big angle guy. But it's funny, like, it, like, like you're saying the way he's performing now, we'll see if it modifies as we keep rewatching this stuff. But like, you would think like a big angle guy would be more serious. Like he's, he's showing a lot of ass here and being, and doing a fair bit of comedy here. And you would think if, if the guy was coming in as a big serious angle guy, he'd be a little less comedic. I mean, it does modify, but I don't know if it does before the CZW feud. We'll see. Yeah. So after the match, 
Joe grabs the mic. He says, Long Island has heard a ton of promises tonight. Loki says he's going to whip ass. Homicide says he's going to kill everybody. And Adam Pierce admitted he sucks dick. And that gets a big Pierce sucks dick chant. Um, Joe says he has one more promise for BJ Whitmer. Joe calls himself the greatest Ring of Honor world champion, the baddest ass pure champion, and soon he'll be an ROH tag team champion. He says there's a lot of guys who claim to be champions, but none of them will be a Grand Slam champion like him. So this is the rare thing, Matt, in Ring of Honor that does not pay off, really, because Joe and Lethal eventually wrestle a match to uh, try and win the number one contendership to the tag titles, but there's never a big quest for the tag titles and Joe and with any partner never wrestles uh Whitmer and Jacobs before they lose the tag title. So I don't, I, don't know, rare... I honestly don't know if he ever gets a tag title shot. I can't think of a time where he does. And Rainy Farms, the company that, you know, during this era, they're usually very good about paying off any tees. And this is the rare tease that for whatever reason, like, they change plans and they don't follow through on it. But, um, we go backstage with Austin Aries he says, survival of the fittest 2004 it was a big night for him, his coming out party where he proved he belonged, but he came up a little short that year to Brian Danielson at the very end. This year, he'll be crowned the 2005 survival of the fittest champion. So a very short promo, but hey, I like that, you know, Ring of Honor doesn't always do this where they're actually giving you like a hook for the next show. It's not a big one, but this is a promo that's sole purpose is to try and get you interested in the next DVD. So they, uh, they actually have them. a promo of like an actual commercial later for the next show, for the live show for some weird reason. But like, yeah, that's... That's a very unusual thing for ROH. Next, we get an ad where Austin Aries is also there. He's showing us around the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. He says, if you want to become a wrestler, this is where you need to be. They have weights. They have weight machines. Lacey is shown lifting some of them. They have an extensive collection of tapes and DVDs you can watch. And he says, Aries says, as part of your training, you'll be at the shows and behind the scenes with some of the biggest superstars in wrestling. Aries says, some Ring of Honor Wrestling School graduates have already worked with Mick Foley, Christopher Daniels, James Gibson, Samoa Joe, CM Punk, Austin. Mercenaries, AJ and AJ Styles. The list goes on and on. Two things I love about that. First off, first off, one Aries lists himself neither first or last in the list of wrestlers. Like it just came off like he was referring to Aries as a separate wrestler from himself. For some reason, that um, amused me. And two, he and Punk were both the two head trainers at the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. So it seems weird to talk about like you get to work with the guy who is train job it is to train you. Like yes, of course you would. Um, Aries says he's the head trainer, but he's not the only person who makes appearances to teach. Ring of Honor international stars show up to work with the students. Uh, Aries understands that there are hundreds of wrestling schools in the U.S., but you should go to Ring of Honor because that's the name recognition. And I think he says at this point the word wreckability, which I don't think is a real word. I guess it was him accidentally combining like credibility and reputability. I think he just said it fast. That was what I thought. Aries says that means when you graduate at the Ring of Honor Wrestling School, you get a foot in the door to a lot of places that other people won't have. And he says email Ring of Honor help at AOL.com, which for some reason, ROH help at AOL.com is, is a funny email address to me. Help. I used, um, to, I used to email them for like when I got like the wrong tickets and stuff like that. Like they, they, <laughs> it happened a couple times. I could probably find the emails. Yeah, no, I've heard people say that happened a lot apparently. They were, respo- um, they were responsive though. Aries says, good luck. He has some kids to beat up. So I posted pictures online. I'm just, I always funny to see the ring of honor office with the, the empty uh, pencil holder, the random action figure that's posed on sitting on top of a chair. I thought this was a kind of ingenuous ad because 
like a couple things. First off, the idea that you get to work with top names like Samoa Joe, like like Mick Foley and guys like that's like, do you really like? We'll, we'll get to later how you get to work with those guys. Like you technically do, but if anyone came in thinking that like, oh, I get to learn from the best or work in an extended way, it's like you get to take a random bump when they need like a random cannon fodder for a big star. That's the extent of you getting to work with a legend. And then the other part of being like. It opens the door to play – the Ring of Honor name opens the door to other promotions that other students won't have. It's like looking at the track record of what happens to these students, does it? I, I don't think it does. Like maybe you get a Chikara booking as Team Ring of Honor in a random like tournament but off the name. But I feel like in some ways it hindered more than it helped probably because there's all these expectations from the Ring of Honor school name. Um, I, um, I actually disagree with you on this one. I think this was a very good ad. Like, like legitimately. Like, I think it, like it did a good job. I, I yes, I, I do think that the RH Wrestling School, as far as like track record of producing like stars and stuff, yeah. I mean, it didn't end up, it didn't end up panning out. But I think that I don't think it was disingenuous. Like, I think they genuinely believe, like, okay, we have good name recognition. We can get people in the door. This was still early on. You know, they didn't know how a lot of these guys would pan out. They were trying. I think they were doing their honest best. Like, I don't think they were trying to rip anybody off. Is what I'm trying to say. Like, I think they were. They were. You know, they really did let these guys put, go on their shows. They did do stuff with big stars. You know, yes, they didn't do anything good with them. Um, but the idea like that in the school you would get appearances, random cameos by some of the other ROH wrestlers, I'm sure that was true. And being trained by Austin Aries at the time was probably cool. And by the way, I think everyone who watched these DVDs understood how the ROH students were used on them. You know what I mean? Like I don't think anybody yeah. had an illusion like, oh, these guys are getting big pushes where they're wrestling great matches against Samoa Joe. So like – I don't know. Like I, I don't think it was disingenuous. I think it didn't work out the way they – wanted it to ultimately you know they, they did produce some some guys that went on to have like pretty good careers i mean what well, Rhett titus was uh, probably one of the uh the longest running uh graduates of the roh school as far as like continuing to get a push in roh over many years right would you say he was probably mm-hmm. the standout yeah but going to that point i i would say you know of all the guys that really got over in wrestling to even a, a small degree for even a limited time I think most of them or all of them had their best success in Ring of Honor. Like if you just tell me who are like the most over guys to graduate from the school, Rhett Titus, obviously the, the, the biggest, uh, Shane Hagedorn for a while, you know, did different heel roles. Pele Primo was over for a while as the underdog. Bobby Debsey as kind of like the lovable loser gimmick. But all of those guys, they got most over in Ring of Honor. So this idea of like it's opening doors somewhere else, like history ended up proving Really, the only door it was even opening a crack was within Ring of Honor itself. Right, but like, do you think that they like that they intentionally lied, or like, or do, I mean, do you think that don't you think they probably thought that it would help? Like, you know, like, oh, we're going to run a school, and because we're ROH, they'll book our guys. Like, do you think that it was an intentional false advertising? Because I, I, because I, I, I don't, and I guess you know, Shane obviously can speak more to like what was wrong with the school or right with it. But like uh, I don't know. I just I don't feel it's fair to say disingenuous. I think, like I said, the school didn't pan out the way that you know you might hope it did. And I think that's true of a lot of wrestling schools. Like there are very few they could point to that like really produce a lot of you know name guys. You know I think the Shawn Michaels Texas Wrestling Academy is one of them. Um, I think what like the Monster Factory I guess would be another yeah. one. There you Land know Storms produce guys. You know yeah. 
but um, but there are there are many, and yes, the ROA school was not one of them that that did. But I, I don't I don't know. I just I just I, I don't I think that as far as like where they were in two thousand five when they made this ad, I think that they did a good job of promoting the school, and I think that what they what they were trying to offer, I think they were genuinely trying to offer it. That's what I believe. I don't know. Maybe I'm naive. I, I probably came off a, a little bit harsh, and yes, you've probably been hurrying for the last 10, 20 minutes if someone's – firing fireworks, of course, that's what you do on Halloween. But um, <laughs> pardon me, folks. I can't be helped. Uh, anyway. Um, I actually don't hear it at all, so I'm assuming our listeners don't. Oh, thank God. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I – I, Matt, you make good points, and I will say I probably overstated a bit. I do think this is a good ad, and maybe disingenuous is a bit of a harsh word. I would just say – I would say I think they overplay the stardom thing and, and, and the open the doors thing. I, I think it's a little vague and a little overplayed, but you know, when you're doing an ad, you put your best foot forward. And you are – you make a great point about anyone watching this ad is going to probably have the full context of what students do in Ring of Honor. I would wonder if this ad ever got played like on the website off of the DVD. I do think like if someone just happened along this ad and didn't know that – you might get the wrong idea, but yeah, if you were just watching the DVD, you probably get the right idea. But if you see the, if you just see offhand, like oh, you get to go to the shows and work with Samoa Joe, uh, you know, get to work with big stars and and it opens doors for you. I do think your mind could go places that aren't in reality. Like in reality, you might get to take a bump for a big star once you come to the shows to set up the ring and work very short dark matches, and the doors that get open aren't like huge. But yeah, I mean, nothing yeah. Is on on the other hand, and I know that you know Brian Danielson has said he's not a good trainer or wasn't then. But like, man, wouldn't it have been cool to say, "Oh, I was trained to wrestle by Brian Danielson," even if you didn't end up being a big star? I mean, I, obviously, I know you're not paying money to go to a wrestling school to not end up being a star. But like, you know what I mean? Like, like there there were advantages to that school. Well, well, that's the thing. I would say I would say the biggest draw of the Reading of Honor Wrestling School was always its head trainer. Like the idea, yeah. oh, you get to tra- be trained by CM Punk or Austin Aries or Brian Danielson. I've said before on this show, I never really wanted to be a wrestler. The only time I had like a one percent in- inkling of thinking maybe I should go move and try this was when Brian Danielson was the head trainer because I was just the draw of oh my favorite wrestler. He seems like a cool guy. He wrestles in a way that I think is awesome. Like it would be cool to learn from him. Like the, you, to me, that's the selling point of this school. It's always just, hey, Ring of Honor fans, do you like this wrestler? Well, he will literally train you. Like you know, hey, do you like Austin Aries? He's going to train you. Like to me, that's the selling point. Yeah, it's a good one though. Although it is funny that Ring of Honor's first two trainers were the, like two of the wrestlers they had access to with like the most prickly reputations of being like kind of not always the nicest guys. <laughs> like, yeah, like, although probably, I, I probably like if, to some people. if you have that like military boot camp like attitude toward like what training should be, you know, maybe they are the right guys to do it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, even Aries ending with like, I excuse me, I've got to go beat up some kids. Like, you know, that appeals yeah. to a certain kind of person. Because right. some people that might be, uh, I don't, maybe I don't want to go to this school if Mr. Aries is going to like yeah. shift me with a forearm. But right. either way, on to uh, a minor match. Um, the Ring of Honor world title match. Brian Danielson defeats James Gibson via submission in 32 minutes, 23 seconds, when he made him tap out to the crossface chicken wing. The title changes hands. Brian Danielson becomes your new Ring of Honor world champion. Huge historic moment for Brian Danielson, for the company. Um, Matt, something we've gone to only once or twice, and it was you that's gone to it. 
is the Brian, or I should say the Daniel Bryan book, Yes, which is a very good book if you like Brian Danielson. Um, there are a couple of excerpts from it that I know you have to read. I guess the first one we should mention is uh, I, I brought this one to your attention. You got the other one on your own. Um, this is the first time Brian Danielson ever comes out to the final countdown, at least in Ring of Honor. I think probably in wrestling in general. And uh, Brian Danielson in the book actually explains why he chose the final countdown. Yeah, so before I read that, I just want to say, so when the music hit for the final countdown, um, you know, I, the music, it took me a second to place it. Um, but, you know, this song was, to me, in the zeitgeist in the mid-2000s from Arrested Development. Like, I, like that's what I associated with. Like, if you watch Arrested Development, Job would always do yeah. his um, allusions uh, to, uh, you know, set with the with final countdown playing in the background and you know it's like so it's just like a goofy song right so as soon as this song hit and i took me a second someone sitting in front of me started screaming like yes the fucking final countdown yes and if you know that's coming and you watch brian danielson's entrance on the dvd and you listen and you look at like the very bottom of the screen you will see that guy and hear his hear him saying that and see his reaction and it's great. So <laughs> go back and watch it. It's there, I promise. Um, yes, the fucking final countdown. Yes, <laughs> like he was so excited for the final countdown. Like he he knew this guy knew that it was going to be a legendary um, entrance theme and it, it it was. So here is what uh, Brian Danielson wrote about it in his book. Uh, yes, by Daniel Bryan. It says, I was in Japan in 2004 looking through a music magazine that listed the 100 worst songs of all time. Lo and behold, Final Countdown was number one, voted as the worst song ever. I loved that song, but hadn't heard it in a long time. Despite the horrible lyrics about leaving Earth for Venus, as soon as I reheard the horns blaring at the beginning... I knew it would be a great entrance theme. Just real quick, are they horns or are they synths? Because I always thought they I, were I thought synths. it was synths, but yeah. I'm, I, I like I'm that. A, I like that. Kidding. Many years later, Brian Danielson thinks that there's like a, a you know a horn section actually playing that. But anyway, um, <laughs> it didn't take long after I started using the ballad for the entire audience to sing along with it, even before it reached the chorus. It's the final countdown. Yes, I'm singing it instead of reading it. <laughs> Unfortunately, WWE couldn't use Final Countdown without paying an exorbitant rights fee. So I suggested using a piece of classical music, Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, which is public domain and can be used freely. One of my favorite old-school Japanese wrestlers, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, came out to it, and it was badass. You know, one thing that I like from that quote is I realize he said that he told WWE to use Ride of the Valkyries because it was public domain, which is like, oh, clever, Brian. <laughs> you realize that in 11 years you would be going to AEW <laughs> and would want to use the same music so that the crowd would recognize it. Sneaky, sneaky, Brian Danielson. I, I, I think that Danielson quote is like one of the most Danielson things ever. Like that reveals him more than most things I've read. Just the idea of like – he chose his two two his two most iconic wrestling themes. The first one was because he read in a music magazine how much everyone hated a song, and the second one was because he, Yoshiaki Fujiwara used it. So it's like to me that sums up Brian Danielson to a T. Um, 
when it comes to Final Countdown, there's a couple of things we could say about it quickly, which is uh, Lenny Leonard on the Between the Sheets podcast has said that when Ring of Honor went to pay-per-view, they couldn't they tried to license the song like they said they paid like a lot of money to get Gimme Back My Bullets by Leonard Skinner for uh, the Briscoes on pay-per-view. Like like I think it was five figures maybe. And uh, they tried to get a final countdown, but the band, I believe Europe is the band that does final countdown. They wanted six figures per pay-per-view. And if you think that was just a ring of honor thing, Tony Khan, all these years later, you know, a guy who has, uh, you know, negotiated some big name. I mean, he got the pixies for, uh, for orange Cassidy. He tried to get final countdown for Brian Danielson and AEW. And I remember Dave and the observer a few months ago wrote that like, um, it was a price too high even for Tony Khan. So credit to Europe. They're uh, apparently like they're not – which is weird because I've seen the final – heard the final countdown on TV shows or and commercials. Like so are, is Arrest Development, all these shows, shelling out like huge amounts of money or are they just sticking it to pro wrestling for some reason? I don't know. Yeah, I mean I guess – yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting question. Actually, I didn't think of that. Like, that is true. That like, yeah, why could Arrested Development use it? I or and yeah, like other things too, right? I can't. I, think I've of seen exactly. commercials that use Final Countdown. I mean, I guess that's it. They're just willing to shell out a million dollars, and I yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> I, I guess that's that's really what it is. I mean, if you watch Arrested Development, it's only used maybe on like f- maybe four or five episodes, maybe even less than that. So that yeah. could be it. Maybe they were just willing to shell out for that small amount of time. Um, I don't know. Um, so anyway, I was going to say, Matt, actually, uh, so one thing I've got to ask, a little on-air production thing. We have another quote I know you can read about Brian Danielson's thoughts on this match. But should we get our thoughts first or should we read that first? Like what, what would you think is the better choice for that? I'll share that stuff after we talk about the match. Yeah, that sounds good. But So, Matt, I think you should give your uh, thoughts first on the match. But first, I got to read something from a some weird pro wrestling torch correspondent. The torch wrote at the time, M. Foy writes, Dragon versus Gibson was awesome. Maybe the best Ring of Honor match this year and definitely worth getting the DVD for. So, Matt, rewatching this match, do you agree with this weird weird m foy fella i mean do you do, i mean this guy he sounds kind of weird out to lunch I, I, there's just something about the way he even though it was such a simple sentence the way he put words together there's something about it that made my blood run cold but what do you feel like glacier um yeah i no, i i actually do agree with him that guy knew what he was talking about i this so this but before i talk about the match like this is a special match to me um, it's obviously a special match for Brian Danielson, but like this is the first Brian Danielson match I've seen live, and it was the match where he wins the ROH title, begins this legendary title reign, and I also saw the match where he lost the ROH title, and I saw a lot of the other matches along the way. I saw the match where he won the WWE title from John Cena for the first time live. I saw his first match in AEW live. Like Brian Danielson, if like if I can associate one person with my live wrestling experience over 16 years it's him and is so this match is really special to me like i i I don't know how else to say it like it's just so so many of my greatest wrestling memories live and and honestly on television too are brian danielson and uh you know i mean we will talk so about so many more live brian danielson matches i saw but i was really excited to see him you know he was he was like the wrestler's wrestler at the time. Like that was his reputation. I had seen Brian Danielson matches, but, and I had watched a bunch, you know, since I had started getting really into ROH, but 
you know, seeing him live was like, that was like one of the things like, oh, I've seen all these other ROH stars live already. I saw Loki live. I saw Homicide. I saw Joe. I saw Punk. I saw Aries. But like Danielson's the guy now I need to see. You know, I, you know, I'd seen AJ and I'd seen Daniels. But now, you know, Danielson is like the ROH guy that's like, I haven't seen him. It was him and the Briscoes were the two that I was like, okay, I still need to see them. So Danielson, I got him here. Um, and I was so excited for this match. And he was, he looked like, like a classic Brian Danielson. Like he had his hair grown back. He was clean shaven. He wore the regal red trunks. And it's interesting because, you know, when people look at uh, Danielson and AEW now, they're like, all right, yes, that's the American dragon. He's finally back. But if you watch this match, he's different than he is now. Like he's playing a different part. He's actually different than he is in most other eras of ROH because he's very reserved here. Like when he comes yeah. out, he's not like, you know, Mr. Intensity, right? Like he's just like, I am a wrestler and I'm going to have a wrestling match. And he's wearing like an old school, like Bob Backlund style, like ring jacket that has American Dragon on the background. Um, he's or, or on the back, I should say. Um, he's, you know, he's just, he's just low key. He's, he's mellow, but like, not like so mellow where it's like, he doesn't care. Like he's not Orange Cassidy, but he's just. He's, you know, sometimes you've seen even an ROH before this and he's looking at the camera all intense eyed or even like screaming at the camera or like fired up or like later on when he's in his, you know, his ROH title run, he's looking very arrogant and things like that. That's not this Brian Danielson. He's just like a, a cool collected wrestler. And that's how he wrestles the match early on too. It's like, there's not, it's not based around intense, hard hitting strikes it's not based around like kicks, right? He he actually has removed the kick pads for this. He's just wearing boots, and he doesn't. His his offense is not nearly as kick oriented. It's a lot of mat wrestling, and it's super well executed. Um, you know, Gibson, you know, really hangs with him. He, you know, everything they do looks great, but it's slow. You know, there's a lot of like pauses in between. The idea, like that, they're neither guy wants to make a mistake. They're they're going. They're going. They're wrestling very methodically and carefully, and it's just fundamental, basic stuff. Um, you know, they do a sequence where they're in a, a knuckle lock, and they do a lot of like roll throughs and stuff until they're, they're, there's like a, a suplex and an escape, and just a lot of basic stuff. And the crowd, you know, they're still interested. You know, they're not like on fire or anything, but like they they appreciate it. And I actually remember this because you know this is a suburbs crowd. It's a, you know, relatively big crowd for ROH and there's, you know, there's casual fans in the audience and kids and stuff. And I just remember this guy sitting behind me, just like watching these, like these, like this wrestling stuff. And he just goes, these guys are good. Like, it's just very obvious, like what a high level their skills, their skill is as far as execution and things like that. Like they're just having a wrestling match. You know, the match slowly does ratchet up in intensity. You know, Gibson takes Danielson outside, beats him up by the guardrail. And as he's doing this, I briefly spot the top of my own head in the crowd. Um, Ooh, eagle-eyed viewers, be on the lookout. Yes, for the top of my head. Um, Because I'm a few rows back, so I can't see my – the rest of my face is obscured by other people. Yes, exactly. Um, (laughs) But, you know, but once I get back in the ring, it's still slow, but, like, slow in a good way. Like, you know, sometimes these slow matches can be boring, but their execution is just so good. Everything just looks so on. Uh, And Gibson starts working over Danielson's neck. He drops – 
drops it, uh, his knee across it. He hits a leg drop. He hits. He like bangs it against the guardrail. He does a neck vice while Danielson is in the tree of woe. He's almost working subtle heel for a little while. Like he's taunting the crowd, saying Danielson ain't going nowhere, or or, or actually he's saying ain't going nowheres, which is uh, which I think is funny to me um, because. Um, and then like when Danielson comes back, I'm like, oh wait. Now Danielson is taunting the crowd. He goes, how about James Gibson now? And he goes, like, later on, he's like, let's hear it for James Gibson. So I guess they're both working vaguely subtle heel. But, like, that's when the, um, the intensity starts ratcheting up. Danielson does the surfboard, and quickly he does the thing where he pulls him all the way back, and he grabs his neck until Gibson gets the ropes. He does the airplane spin, but you could tell this is a new Danielson. Because it's it's a longish airplane spin, but it's nothing like the ones he was doing earlier in the year. And when he sells being dizzy after it, it's much less over the top than it had been previously. You know, like in the previous year, he would like you know flop to the other like the wrong corner and like like fall flop around before he finally gets onto the top rope. This time, he just sort of like acted a little dizzy, then got to the top rope. Took him a second to steady himself. Um, but then he went for the headbutt, and I guess the idea was it took too long for him to balance because he missed the headbutt, and that allowed Gibson to get the choke. Um, but Danielson was standing, so he powered Gibson over his head into a suplex, which is very impressive because like there's no like Gibson jumping there. You know, once Gibson's already off the ground, it's totally Danielson's own power that powers him over. So Danielson is sneakily powerful, at least during this era. Um, Eventually, actually, Danielson rolls Gibson into a victory roll, but he does it over the top rope and then skins the cat to bring himself back into the ring, then hits a running dive. I remember watching this being like, man, this guy is just like on another level. Like he just like can do everything so smoothly. <laughs> um, and now they're on the floor and Gibson, and Danielson starts working over uh, Gibson's arm. Um, aggressively, like hitting it against the uh, a guardrail, and Gabe actually does like a Gorilla Monsoon type of thing because he's like, I don't think Gibson would ever tap away the world title. He's not the kind of wrestler who quits, which I which I found interesting for like an ROH style promotion because that was a sort of like an old WWF thing where submissions weren't as big of a deal, like and you know you I always remember like just learning from Dave Meltzer. You don't want to be an announcer that says that if you tap tap out, you're a quitter because. You know, you want it to be acceptable to lose by tap out. So I thought it was surprising that Gabe did it. I mean, I get why he did it. It was kind of to divert attention away from the finish. But I don't know. I thought it was a surprising choice. Well, it's also classic Gabe, which is you're telegraphing the finish by saying it can't happen. That's true also, yeah. Yeah. Definitely classic Gabe. Um, So back in the ring, you know, Danielson is working over the arm. Missile drop kick right to the arm. And then, uh, you know, he does like an, an, an inverted divorce court DDT. Um, and gets like repeated two counts, which I guess the idea is he's trying to get Gibson to kick out over and over and wear himself out. Uh, he even does the thing where he sits on Gibson's shoulders and flexes his biceps like an old school heel, which allows Gibson to turn it into a sunset flip pinning style combo. Um, and like everything get, get Danielson does on the mic, uh, the arm at this point, it's just super fundamentally perfect. Um, Gibson comes back with some impact moves and, uh, and Danielson goes for a cross arm breaker, but Gibson wraps up Danielson's legs, turns it into a clover leaf, which was a really cool reversal. And Danielson makes the ropes. Um, and now they're starting to get into more of the uh, intense finishing sequence. Um, Danielson goes for a tombstone, but Gibson reverses it and hits a tombstone of his own. And then he pops up immediately and hits a really nice top rope leg drop for two. Bobby Eaton would be proud. Um, 
he goes right into the choke, and now the crowd's chanting, please don't tap. They want Danielson to win. Um, and Danielson actually stands up in the choke, almost like Hogan in the camel clutch. He runs Gibson into the turnbuckles. Um, so Gibson actually gets up on one of the turnbuckles, hits a, a spinning DDT, and then the Tiger driver, um, Danielson, kicks out, and that's the biggest pop of the match, I think, so far. And now we have the dueling chance. Gibson hits a few knees to Danielson's head, and Danielson powers up and screams in Gibson's face. So we're starting to get that intense Brian Danielson. So Gibson pokes Danielson's eyes, which is almost like Joe putting his feet on the ropes, but not quite that level of betrayal. I don't think the crowd really cared as much that he did that. It wasn't like, oh, Gibson, how could you? Um, Danielson hits a roaring forearm, dragon suplex with a nice bridge for a two, then Gibson kicks out, but Danielson holds on, grabs the cattle mutilation. Gibson fights out, so Danielson hits a tiger suplex for two. Gibson struggles into a pinning combo. Danielson keeps holding on um, to the, but Gibson keeps fighting. So eventually, Danielson, instead of going for the cattle mutilation, turns it into a, cho- a cross-faced chicken wing. And since Gibson is already has an injured shoulder, he taps out. Big pop for that. Although I will say this. Far from the loudest pop so far for a title change. But that might be the venue also. But it's still a big pop. The crowd is excited. Um, so this match is just not what you think of as a big main event world title match nowadays. In fact, I don't know if there's a promotion in the world, and you tell me because you watch more different stuff than I do, if there's a promotion where you could see a match like this. Where to me, it feels like just like what you would describe as a wrestling clinic. They just do such great fundamentally sound stuff. And it never gets to that like big exchange of epic emotional near falls and dramatic strikes and big spots. It's way more low key than that, but just it just builds and builds, and everything is so perfectly done that and you know the the uh, the limb work is so psychologically sound that it all works out in the end, and the crowd still loves it. I I thought it was a great match. Uh, was it the best match of ROH in two thousand five so far? To me, it's between this and the Redemption match, which the four-way where Gibson won the title, and I know I like that match a lot more than you did. Um, that match was just way more dramatic, um, which is what I liked about that. But I think this beats every other singles match of the year so far, honestly. I just think it was just so well executed. And again, you just don't see a match like this anymore. I, um, you know, If you're watching this expecting to see the big dramatic epic, that's not what this is. This is just like a hell of a wrestling match between two baby faces who work with a little bit of an edge, but they're not, you know, they're not doing this intense striking They're You know, Danielson's chest is not beat red after this match. Like it is after every AEW match. This is a different Brian Danielson and it's a different kind of match. And I still love it to this day, but you know, I do have some bias myself. So I think this is a great match. I am probably uh, on the lower end of it i i i think it's great um but i know there are people who absolutely love it like we'll go into a quote from dave Meltzer later he loves it um you know uh listening to our friends at the honorable mention podcast i know jeff schwartz would say calls this a five-star match i wouldn't go that far oh no i wouldn't i I wouldn't say anything like that no i I wouldn't even go quite as far as you matt because i think there are might be a two or three matches singles matches i like more than this in 2005 ring of honor but I think it's uh, you put a point on it without really intending to kind of help me figure out why I feel that way is because, yeah, this is not a epic world title match. 
Like, I feel like it feels to me bigger than a standard Ring of Honor main event. But when I think of, like, some of my favorite Ring of Honor matches or the ones that feel biggest, like the Joe versus Punk matches, the final minutes of Aries versus Joe, Homicide Credo from Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies, um, those matches have, like, a special... So, there's something there's like a special sauce there's something ma- there's something that just feels magic at some point in those matches this it never quite feels magic like this feels great and i admire it and i really love it and i and i and i have a huge emotional connection to the moment danielson wins but it's just that it's at that very end moment i think you can almost hear that from the crowd too where the crowd's into the match the whole way and they pop pretty big for the win but like in the final minutes they're into everything but it's not that that Aries Joe or Punk Joe, like kind of just, you can feel just this momentum building among the fans, even this energy of like, holy shit, we're seeing something special. It's more like we're seeing something great and holy crap, Danielson won. That's really, really cool. But I think it's a great match. I, I, I think it's two technical guys, you know, two of the top technical wrestlers of their era, just playing with each other you know, having fun, you know, the first third of this match is probably all just technical, great technical wrestling, like you said, like executed to perfection. Um, I do feel like it is like some Danielson matches, whereas a tendency where Danielson kind of is, is aimlessly doing stuff and just having fun. And then he kind of figures out where to take the match. But w- one thing I, I really love about this match is, um, I feel like a lot of matches that do like the, the mat work for a long time. And then they break into like, more impact moves it feels like someone just took a it feels like very jarring like it's like they turn a switch go okay technical wrestling portion of the match is is off these guys for some reason when they kind of raise the stakes a bit like it doesn't feel jarring and i don't know why but it it just feels more natural and i I don't mean to interrupt because this is your sequence but like no go on i can say why i think it is because they don't really flip that switch it never really changes that much they hit more impact moves but it's all within like the the uh, melange of uh, doing these technical spots, you know, like it's not like it's not like it's it's just like it's, the match just doesn't feel like it's in a different phase. It just feels like they're incorporating more stuff into the same stuff they've been doing, and it's more directed. Like so, it doesn't go from technical wrestling to big impact, dramatic near falls. It goes from technical wrestling to more technical wrestling with some big impact moves in between the holds. Yeah, and I, I think I think I'm glad you said that. I think that's a great way to put it. And I think um, this match also has good progression. Like I feel like the middle of the match, you can feel like things are getting a little bit bigger, a little more you know intense, a little bit of healing, and, and just the moves, the offense goes from like low level to mid level. Like like it just it, it grows up gradually in a way that makes sense. I will say there is one weird thing. And I don't even know if I did necessarily if this is a criticism. I th- I don't think I necessarily dislike this, but there is a moment. I think it's when um Danielson does, which I I love. You mentioned it the the victory roll over the ropes and then he does the dive and that's a moment where you feel like okay i think shortly before that was when danielson i think did the flying headbutt maybe that sequence you think okay this is the match just pick it up into like the high gear now we went from the middle to the high and then danielson decides to like slow it down like that's when he decides i'm gonna start working over the arm and he does that for a few minutes and the match kind of slows down again and the crowd gets a little bit quieter again and Sometimes I don't like that. I know there. I've brought this up before. Samoa Joe has this theory that our matches you can you can kind of plateau for a while at a level, but you should never like 
geared down. You, you should once you hit a level, you should stay at that level or go higher. You shouldn't go smaller. And this is a match I feel like it does gear down, but I don't think that's necessarily always a bad thing. I, I don't necessarily always agree with that philosophy. And then what I really loved at the end is I love the way these guys did their bigger moves in this match because I feel like a lot of times in matches, um, especially nowadays, it's back and forth. It's you hit a big move, near fall. Then you hit, then the other guy hits a big move, near fall. Then you hit your move, another big move of yours. And they kind of parse out the big moves and the near falls one at the time. And one thing I love about these guys is both guys near the end had like a sequence where they just like emptied the clip where they would hit a bunch of their stuff in a row. And there might be a near fall mixed in, but really felt like just like, if this is my shot, I'm going to throw everything at you. Like you talked about all the moves you did a really good match description. Like Gibson in very short order does a tombstone, a top rope leg drop, you know, the guillotine choke finisher the tiger driver he does that all in a very short span it's like he's just throwing everything at them and then at the end you know danielson does something i love in wrestling which is i love in wrestling whenever a guy latches onto a specific move or position or hold and he just doggedly is like i'm not letting go of this and at the end of this match the ending sequence is danielson basically deciding i'm not going to give up this guy's back ever again because he does a dragon suplex he gets a pinfall attempt out of it. He turns it into the cow mutilation. You know, Gibson stands up out of it. But Danielson keeps the back, keeps the arms, you know, locked behind Gibson's back. He tries to pull him down to cow mutilation again. He can't. So he, he turns that into a, a tiger suplex. You know, Gibson survives it. He d- tries to do the cow mutilation again. You know, Gibson gets up. And it's finally at that very end moment, he's still standing up. He's still got Gibson's arms on his back. He's still got his back like he has all this time. He can't get Gibson down again for the cat mutilation. And that's why he does the cross face chicken wing. Because then he just has, he just adjusts the grip slightly because he still has, can keep that one arm behind his back and just moves the other arm up to do the cross face. And it's such a perfect finish because it's like, he had his back the whole time and he was clearly looking for this one specific thing, but he kept doing all these other things. He's like, well, I can do all these other things. And finally he does this one thing that he hardly, I don't, I think I may have seen him do a, a cross face chicken wing one time before this ever. And, you know, it's like finally he catches him with something from that position that he would not expect and wins the match. And I love that ending sequence. I love that. And this is a great match. It's just, it's not quite an epic match, but it's a great match. If you love technical wrestling, you will love this match. So and I, there's a lot to get into. Something I, well, I was going to say before you about the match. First. Oh, go on, um, go on, go on. Um, the, um, so as far as the chicken wing, I, I do wonder um, if um, if he's going to bust that out in AEW because, you know, his whole thing right now uh, as recording this in AEW is that he wins each match differently. So he's got to bust out the chicken wing at some point, right? I, I think it actually it gave mentions on commentary like that Danielson has so many ways to win, which made me think of what I you know what I you know we've been seeing in AEW lately. But I, I do want to just ask you real quick, do you think that this kind of match exists in the world in twenty twenty one? Like is there any promotion where a match like this happens? I think there are wrestlers that can do this, but I don't think they many promotions book matches like this like like a a slower like mat based but like not like hybrid mma like just old school wrestling on the mat building you know building logically with limb work stuff like very slow but still entertaining like i i think they're just the wrestlers now just have so much of a temptation to like bust out the strong style or like some something akin to it 
You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, um, you, you mentioned that I watch more stuff than you, and I probably do, but I probably don't watch, like, I'm so busy, and I, I'm not that, so much stuff to do, and so much stuff to watch now. I'm not that worldly, worldly. So, like, when, when, what brought to mind when you asked that question at first was, like, I know guys like Gre- Jonathan Gresham or Zack Sabre Jr., they could and probably want to have matches like that. Sure. I, going to your point, I don't know if there are promotions booking them to do that. Like, like, uh, like, like I think, you know, when you see them in companies like New Japan or Ring of Honor, I, I think they have what you just said, which is there's that, pre- they do some technical wrestling, that's their bread and butter, but there's a temptation, there's a pressure and a temptation to be like, we've also got to make this more traditional and more exciting. Even, Dan- even Danielson, Danielson, I mean, yeah. even in his ROH title reign, and especially now, like he, he ratchets up the high impact stuff for sure. But for all I know, there's some promotion out there that's booking like Jonathan Gresham versus like Daniel McCabe or something, and it's out there, and they are getting a chance to that. But I will say, in a promotion of prominence, at least of like the Ring of Honor of this level or above, yeah, I think that pressure nowadays is more against seeing a match like like. You know, there, there's technical wrestling. Like I, I know PWG recently had Jonathan Gresham versus Lee Moriarty, and I'm sure there was lots of great technical wrestling in that. But yeah, would they feel confident in doing like a half an hour pure technical match like this? That goes, sl- but and also like the technical wrestling is slow. You know, like because like yeah. know, a lot of times like the really cool technical wrestling, like even Zack Saber Jr., it's fast paced technical wrestling. You know. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before, which is, and you've really said it well. Like I was talking about, oh, a lot of these matches, there's a switch. And you were talking about how this match, there's no switch that's flipped. It's not like, here's the technical wrestling portion, here's the rest of it. I feel like nowadays that switch almost always gets flipped for whatever reason. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know how many matches don't flip the switch like this, you know, that just kind of stay in that world at least somewhat the entire way through. Yeah, and, and again, I was going to say, this is a different Brian Danielson than, than I'm used to seeing. You know, it's like the AEW Brian Danielson is very much like the ass kicker, right? Like he's going to come out there and yeah. take a lot of punishment and dish out a lot of punishment. This Brian Danielson, like, yeah, he he's he's an ass kicker and that he like dishes out punishment, but it's slow on the mat torture. It's not like I'm going to kick the shit out of you. This this Brian Danielson, like, he's not. You're going to get your fucking head kicked in Brian Danielson just yet. Although he does try to introduce the chant pretty soon. Um, and, you know, I, he even says, like, he's not really sure what he is at this point, character-wise. He finds the character a little bit later. He doesn't really have a character here. He's just great wrestler Brian Danielson. But it works because people are interested in seeing him. Um, well, actually, maybe that's the maybe that's the time for the quote now because yeah. that's kind of leading into what we're talking about now with this. Right. So, yeah, so in his book, uh, he talks about going to England um, after leaving, um, leaving ROH. Uh, so I um, – actually, I'll just start reading. This is on page 118 from, um, from Danielson's book, Chapter 11. Um, in early May, shortly before the New Japan – excuse me, shortly before the Super Juniors tour, I got a call from Simon, Simon Anoki, who said the New Japan did indeed want me for that month's tour. But because I was a last-minute addition, they would need to lower my pay by $500 per week. I told him thanks, but no thanks. Even with the pay cut, I would have made more money on the three-week New Japan tour than I would working the entire summer in England. It was one of the few times I made a decision in wrestling because I was angry and felt disrespected. I never found out exactly why all of that happened. So this, I guess I missed the, 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 um, 
the paragraph where he said that he wasn't originally booked on that uh, Super Juniors tour. Um, yeah, it's basically he's talking about how he feels New Japan was kind of starting to jerk him around. Like they would yeah. say, we're going to book you for tours in 2005. And then always at the last minute, they'd be like, oh, we couldn't get your visa or something. He just felt something weird was going on. Yeah, exactly. I never found out why exactly all of that happened, though I later learned it had something to do with politics between the Inoki Dojo and New Japan. I was essentially a pawn in a larger struggle. As a result, I never went back to the Inoki Dojo or to New Japan, which is unfortunately because I love both. I have a feeling at least the second part of that's going to change at some point over the next year or two. Um, anyway, uh, my second tour of England was much the same as my first back in 2003. Lots of fun, stress-free wrestling, where I could further hone the entertainment aspect of my performance. Also, as on my previous trip there, it was kind of like I disappeared from the planet when I was in England. My cell phone didn't work there. So other than trying to make a monthly call to my family, and that's a very loose definition of try, I was pretty much incommunicado. Sometimes, on rare days off, I'd go to the library to check my email, and on one such occasion, I had a message in my inbox. From CM Punk, I believe though I could be mistaken, citing a rumor that both WWE and TNA, in parentheses, total nonstop action, were, were interested in Ring of Honor's top three guys, Punk, Samoa Joe, and me. You know, I mentioned um, uh, when we reviewed main event spectacles after Danielson had gotten back from his previous uh, England tour that the world was so different back then because like when you went to England for a few months, you basically did drop off the face of the earth. Whereas now like yeah. that shit would be up on YouTube in like two seconds. But it is interesting to hear Danielson say he intentionally turned off his cell phone and, and would just check his email very sporadically. So, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe, but you know, now you could just check cage match and see what the matches the guy's having. But this guy, but at this point it was like, Oh, this guy's just not wrestling right now. Yeah. Anyway. I'd done a few enhancement matches for WWE earlier in the year, and I knew I was at least on their radar, because I was always given competitive matches rather than just getting squashed. After that email, I became more conscious of getting to the library on days off. Soon after, Samoa Joe signed with TNA, and they pushed him right away on TV. Punk went the other way and signed a developmental deal with WWE. I stayed in England for four months on this trip without hearing anything more about it. When I flew back to the United States that September, I kind of expected to be offered a deal by one of the two organizations, but when I turned my phone on, I didn't have a single voicemail, and nobody from either company contacted me in the weeks that followed. To be fair, I didn't call them either. That's that lack of ambition. So, just side note. How fucking ridiculous that nobody wanted Brian Danielson in 2005. Like, that's one way that wrestling has definitely gotten better. There is no way someone could be that much better than everybody else and not have someone knocking on his door trying to hire him. Yeah, right? I have an anecdote I'll tell after the story. That's a little bit about how I felt about all this. But yeah, that that's a big part of it. Like, how crazy it was at this period of his life that he was like a man without a country, so to speak. Insane. I did, however, receive a phone call from Gabe Sapolsky, Booker of Ring of Honor. He didn't reach out to offer me a contract or a ton of money. His offer was something different. My first opportunity to be the man, as Ric Flair often described it. Gabe has admitted he never saw that potential in me at first. He thought I was a great wrestler, but lacked the ability to be the guy the company was based around. He saw that trade in Punk. And he saw it in Samoa Joe, who had a nearly two-year reign with the ROH title. 
Those guys were locker room leaders, and each of them had a unique charisma. Gabe saw me as a nice, quiet guy, content to just do my own thing. With Punk leaving for WWE and Joe heading to TNA, Jamie Noble, known as James Gibson in Ring of Honor, won the ROH Championship in August 2005. But not too long after that, WWE offered Jamie a contract to return, which he took, and Gabe was out of options. You're the guy we want to build around, Gabe said to me. But to do that, I have to know that you won't leave for WWE or TNA, or be gone all the time on Japan tours. I didn't have any offers from those larger organizations, and hadn't heard a word from New Japan since I left for England, but there was definitely more to consider than that before accepting. Being the ROH champion was a tough gig. They would rely on my matches to sell DVDs and bring people to the buildings. To go on last and send the people home happy was a considerable challenge, because everyone was trying to have the best match on the card. And by the time you went out there, the fans had seen it all. Nonetheless, it wasn't more than a few seconds before I agreed. I vowed I wouldn't go to WWE and that I'd put all of my energy into ROH for at least one year. It was a huge opportunity, but I needed to raise my game. At Glory by Honor 4 on September 17, 2005, I beat Jamie Noble, competing under his real name, James Gibson, for the Ring of Honor World Championship. Even though we didn't go on last, I knew we were the main event. Jamie and I wrestled our hearts out for over 20 minutes in front of the very appreciative fans in Lake Grove, New York. I always loved wrestling Jamie, but this was the first time we got to have that kind of match. The kind of match people would remember. When it ended, after Jamie ultimately tapped out to the cross-faced chicken wing, the crowd erupted. He and I hugged, after which I grabbed the microphone and promised the fans that while I was champion, I wouldn't even think of leaving Ring of Honor. Ironically enough, I missed the next two ROH shows, two of the biggest shows in the company's history because they featured a rare appearance in America by Japanese wrestling legend Kenta Kobashi because they took place on the weekend my sister got married. To me, some things are more important than wrestling. I will just add, he actually missed the next three ROH shows, and it were on two different weekends. Yeah. What's your excuse for that, Brian? No, just kidding. Um, um, the other one, actually, I can tell you was he actually was booked for the Ted Petty Invitational, and oh, he had duh. booked that first. Yes, and- of course decide he couldn't cancel it yes of course of course of course um my ring of honor world championship win has always ranked very high on my list of accomplishments they chose me to be the man and that hasn't happened very often in my career it was one of the few times when it was decided i was going to be given the ball and got pushed to the the top spot to carry the promotion before i won the title roh fans hadn't seen me since may when i had shaved my head and had a long beard When I returned, I came back clean-cut with no beard and neatly trimmed hair. Whereas before I wore black, I came back wrestling all maroon gear given to me by William Regal. I even came out wearing a maroon jacket with American Dragon embroidered on the back. It was a more classic look inspired by an older generation of wrestlers like Bob Backlund and Billy Robinson, symbolizing that I would be more of a sportsman and less of an entertainer. Soon, I realized that was a mistake, and that part's a little bit to be continued. But that's where I'll yeah. leave it. Off. That's where I'll leave it off. Yeah, that that's that's. Uh, I was going to. I we both researched this independently, and when Matt said he wanted to read this, that was a delightful surprise. But I will just say we both ended at the exact same kind of ominous to be continued sentence, which I think is perfect. Yes. Um. It wasn't. Yeah, a, it wasn't a mistake on this night, though. I will say that. No. But yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying, Matt, about um, 
you know, how he wrestled with a little less of a mean streak. It still peaks out a little bit, you know, when he's kind of taunting Gibson. But I guess that was, judging from his book, you know, a conscious decision to be kind of like a throwback. Like his approach, and we will see, it it will change and he'll have more to say about it in his book and we'll have more to say about it in future shows. But it won't work out quite the way he thinks it it should, but I think he did see kind of see. I mean, maybe it's probably not a coincidence. He did the crossface chicken wing and he references Bob Backlund, that book passage where I think he probably saw him as kind of like just the neutral, like you love me. Cause I'm just a great pure wrestler champion where you didn't maybe, maybe that was the point and to not have an edge, not really have a, a real strong character presence. Yep. And um, yeah, I do think he did the chicken wing. Um, because as, as an intentional homage to Backlund, I, I do think that. And um, so my little anecdote, which is, first off, it's infuriating. Like this takes you back to when we used to talk on AOL Instant Messenger when these shows were happening. You being able to reel off all the amazing historic shows you saw, where I live in fucking bumfuck Canada, can't see anything. A very prestigious town, bumfuck. But um. <laughs> And, they uh, set off fireworks on Halloween. I, I saw I, – and they have a cougar. Attack, and, but, yeah, a, coug- uh, a cougar alert, of but course. I, Nitro did come here to bumfuck once, and I always mention this on Twitter from time to time. But I got to attend – the one Nitro I got to attend, the main event was Kevin Nash talking to a cardboard cutout of Scott Hall in the ring. That was the main event. A legendary um, moment, so- though. I will say that. <laughs> You might be able to see like my arm if you watch that show on the hard camera side. But uh, anyway, imagine to the voice. Um, So I do have only a couple times in Ring of Honor history because that where I have a real memory of the closest that you can get if you weren't there live of experiencing something as it happened, which was getting the results from the Ring of Honor message board, furiously refreshing on a Friday or Saturday night because that's how cool you were. I do it. I do it for all the Midwest shows too. For the record. Yeah, uh, this was my this was, I have two anecdotes like this. This is the first one. The next one will come much later. But I remember refreshing on, over and over again wanting to know who won this match and I was convinced that Danielson would not win. Because of everything that we, you kind of talked about in the book, you know, Danielson and you have to Danielson was already my favorite wrestler in the world at this time, but I had kind of accepted that he was never going to be a world champion in Ring of Honor because if you look at his booking Danielson, you know, he was sometimes almost close to a full-timer, but he was always had Japan as a higher priority, and there were times where he would leave for large stretches, and that thing where Gabe said, like, he never, I never saw him as the guy who could be the top guy, like, you kind of got that impression of the booking, like, Gabe always booked Danielson up to this point with great respect, and usually in significant matches, but you always got the feeling, whether it was because he was away in Japan, or because of just philosophy, he never quite put him in that that full all the way you never got all the way behind him and i don't know if i necessarily blame him even at at the time because of the commitments and stuff and then i was aware of all the stuff like i wasn't quite aware of the new japan stuff i was aware he was stopping to be booking in new japan i didn't know the reasons why and i think this was around the time where he was kind of having that kind of crisis of faith moment that samoa joe was happening too before tna that like why isn't anyone hiring me like is this is all is this where i top out and i think that was this was I think this was around the time where he was doing an interview where he said like he was considering maybe leaving wrestling and joining the Peace Corps. Like like the Europe thing was kind of to have some fun and clear his head and decide what he wanted to do. And so I thought there was a very real chance at this point Danielson might not be long term in pro wrestling period. 
And I thought maybe he's just coming back to Ring of Honor to do a few shows or something like that. And then I remember refreshing, and I saw he had won this match, he had won the world title, and he had won it with the cross-faced chicken wing. And I just lost my mind at home. I was like, holy shit. Like, it was one of the most gratifying moments I have ever had as a wrestling fan was reading that result. And I, I was thinking about it the other day, and I was thinking, I don't think there's a wrestler I've ever had as much of an emotional connection to as Danielson. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One, it's because he's awesome. Two, he's more relatable than a lot of wrestlers because, you know, look, Danielson is way different than us, you know, in so many millions of ways. But compared to the average pro wrestler, like he's way less of a jock. He seems to be way more sensitive and introspective. Like this is a guy, you know, he's from the Pacific Northwest like me. He's vegetarian like you. He, um, he had a book club with, with Jimmy Jacobs on a podcast for a while. You know, he's more thoughtful. He's more self-deprecating. He doesn't have the build of a lot of the pro wrestlers. He's more cerebral. Yes, like, although, although I don't totally buy him. His comment about how he doesn't have ambition. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't yeah. think that, compared to real people who don't have ambition, I don't think that's actually true. But I get, I kind of get him, his point, which is that he's just like laid back and isn't like super competitive, like in the same way some other jo- jocks are. Yeah. Yeah, so all that stuff I can relate to, and I feel like there's no one that's been more satisfying to follow if you've been a fan from his entire career than Danielson of this generation, because his career has been nothing but these huge moments where you think he's done, and then these amazing comebacks where he reaches new heights. Like, this is the first, and to me, why this is so significant as a fan of Danielson is this is the first one of those, because I was in a position where I was thinking, maybe this guy's done, or maybe he just will never be recognized. Like, you know... Again, like we were saying, it is crazy. TNA wasn't really interested in him. WWE wasn't really interested in him. Joe and Punk even got eventually got offers in this time. Danielson, New Japan, which had previously been booking him, now loses interest in him. And you're thinking, maybe this is just it for him. And he he was probably thinking that. And to all of a sudden see this instead, instead of my he, now my favorite wrestler is now getting the ball in my favorite promotion. That was the first huge moment. And then you think about he eventually gets signed with WWE. And then he gets released almost immediately with that stupid, you know, tie-choking Nexus angle kerfluffle. And then you think, well, what's what's it for him now? And then he comes back. And then he has some really good stuff in WWE, but he has the classic WWE thing where he's never getting pushed to the level of his talent or how over he is. And it's the whole B-plus player storyline. And then all these things happen where the crowd kind of, you know, their semi-burial of him works against them. He gets more over than ever. Punk leaves, which leaves WrestleMania wide open. Also, he gets pushed to the the greatest moment. That was the famous WrestleMania 30 where you were texting, messaging me and talking about, like, how you wanted to have sex with Vince McMahon, all the sex. Whoa, 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 whoa. Actually, that sex line was for a much more embarrassing thing now because that was actually when Chris Benoit won the title which is way more embarrassing to say. So that oh, was even... I thought it was 30. No, I mean those two moments are very similar in my mind because I was really happy about Benoit. Embarrassing to say right now. I'm not embarrassed about how excited I was about Daniel. I mean we all were. That's not embarrassing. I mean yes. we but, didn't know. But... but yes, that line about sex, I don't actually want to have sex with a sick man. I think he's a bad guy. <laughs> I want to make that clear. But to be fair, I want to have sex with a sick man after WrestleMania 30. I, I at least give him a smooth well, and then, well, that was before oh. you were such a cougar. 
But then after that, you know, then he has this horrible injury that takes him out of everything. And then he comes back from that and works a little bit. And then he has another horrible injury that ends his career. And then he comes from back and it's this huge triumphant return that you can't believe happened. And then WWE kind of, he has some good matches and moments in WWE, like the Kofi Kingston match, as you really point out very well recently on Twitter this week, a great tweet, which was Danielson has great matches with people whose last name is Kingston and also everybody else. That was a, a fantastic <laughs> tweet. Um, but, but then, you know, then you feel like, oh, maybe his career's running out in WWE. He's not really being used to his potential. He's talking about how he's doing interviews where he's going like, maybe I'm losing a step and maybe, you know, wrestle, maybe at WrestleMania I felt nothing. And then he goes to AEW and now he's as good as he's been maybe ever. And he, like, just on a streak like, of incredible matches, like it's just an unbelievable streak. Probably maybe the best streak he's ever been on as of this recording is just this, this current AEW streak of just like, Amazing matches one after another every week. And so my my point is this is the like his career has been nothing but these insane rises and falls. And this is I feel like the first rise from a fall he's had in his career. Like I guess if you were really going back to his very beginnings of the career, you could say when he first got he and Spanky first got WWE developmental deals and got released before this, like, you know, right when his career was starting. But most of us weren't following his career from absolute day one. To me, this is like the first major time where you fit where you were kind of counting his career out and he just it turns out, no, it's going to go to a new level. And it was just such a huge moment for me as a fan of him and as a fan of Ring of Honor. This was like one of my favorite moments. And I still remember how I felt when I was just sitting in front of my – I can't even remember when my old – I think it was an IBM desktop computer. I just remember everything about – it might have been a compact. I'm not sure. But to show you how old it is, and I just I just love that moment. I love that. It's amazing. Um, we got some other notes here. First off, I just want to mention quickly a couple notes from the match. Uh, Prezik at one point describing Danielson's new look says he regained his focus and learned how to use a big disposable. So I thought that was funny. Just like, and it's funny wasting, thinking, wasting like, plastic. Tick, tisk tisk tisk. The planet's champion. But I think it's funny that like there were everyone was kind of like joking about Danielson's beard back then when he would grow a much wilder beard and grow get, get like great success from that in years to come. There, like, there, there's a fan that actually uh, yelled in the match like, "Where's your scary beard?" And I was like, and I wanted to say to the guy, "Just wait seven years, buddy." Yeah. Everyone was beard shaming Danielson and like they were pushing him away from something that would really help him out. But uh, and then another thing that was not. I thought was interesting during the match, Matt, was uh, Galen commentary at one point says, if James Gibson loses the world title here, he'll work survival of the fittest, and that will probably be it for him in Ring of Honor. But, in fact, that does happen, and he works two more shows after that because he works both the Joe versus Kobashi double shot. So I wonder if Gabe was wondering if he even was sure, wasn't was sure at this point if uh, – or maybe they had already – I mean I don't know yeah, where I mean, they no, no, there's no way because they recorded the comment. Like, the, the, the Joe the, – the, those Kobashi shows were two weeks after this, you know, like – I don't think – I mean the, the, those Gibson matches were already announced by then. I, I'm but, almost, but again, I'm it, it's going to the same thing we talked about with the Kobashi thing, which is why would you like lead fans away from something that could draw like interest in shows? Like say, oh, he'll probably – if he loses tonight, he'll probably be done after the next show. Like no, he's going to have actually significant matches on the double shot with yeah, it's Kobashi. Weird. It's weird. But anyway, a uh, couple more notes to wrap up this long section. Uh, the Observer wrote about Brian Danielson and this match. Dave wrote – 
Brian Danielson beat James Gibson to win the Ring of Honor title in 32 minutes, 25 seconds in what was apparently an awesome match on September 17th in Lake Grove, New York. I was told that the ma- it was told to me that the match was in the four and a half star range. It was Danielson's return from a summer tour of the United Kingdom where he wrestled a lot with a ma- with a mask and did mainly comedy style match or main many comedy style matches. He shaved his beard and grew his hair back out. Crowd was 80 percent behind Danielson with Gibson helping out playing subtle heel champion to help build the eventual pop for the finish place went nuts when gibson tapped out to a chicken wing submission danielson said that he's not going to tna or wwe as long as he's ring of honor champion at this point there doesn't appear to be movement from either side about making him an offer of course if tna wants him he'll get the second offer in other words like dave saying wwe at this point if if they knew tna was interested they would poach a guy just to make sure they couldn't have him because you know like we said at the start of the show talking about the unbreakable pay-per-view tna was in a big moment at this time they were about to uh get spike tv anyway dave continues danielson was planned to be champion several months back as the idea when punk was champion was to go punk to gibson to danielson it was not supposed to happen this soon but wwe only gave gibson until october 2nd to finish up and this was the only chance to do the match danielson is booked for ian rotten's ted Pitt invitational this coming weekend and had a family commitment the weekend after which as you know Matt just said in reading the book, that would have been uh, his Danielson's sister's wedding. Um, they are hopeful of, of Danielson having a Samoa Joe-like run because he's the kind of a guy who can get an excellent match out of just about everyone they can put him against and where they can at least make the plausible argument that their champion is the best in the world. So first, before I go on that, I want to say, didn't you say, didn't, don't you think that reading that Danielson quote from the book – that Danielson makes it kind of sound like like Gabe's coming to him kind of well Gibson is champ because he's out of options where, you know, according to Dave, this was always the plan. Like for months back, it must have been because, you know, he, he makes it sound like this was the plan when Punk was champion. Well, to go dude, Gabe- self-deprecating Danielson probably just thinks that like, oh, he's only coming to me because he has no choice. But like, yeah, I'm sure Gabe had a much Gabe had a much more affirmative reason for picking Brian Danielson. Like, oh, it would be really great to have Brian Danielson as champion, not like, oh, fuck, we're out of options. Yeah, and, and um, so yeah, that's interesting. And you could say, well, well, how could Danielson be wrong? But as we just pointed out in his book, he completely forgot that he was actually gone the next three shows, the not the next two. So he also forgot writing- something. He also forgot something else, which we'll read, which I'll read in a couple shows. Yeah, so, like, your memory, you know, even when you're trying to tell the truth, you know, the memory gets fuzzy. Lord knows if I tried to write about things that happened 10, 15 years ago, I would get all sorts of stuff wrong. So, um, that first, and then next, another thing. This Then, weeks later, Dave actually got to watch this match, and he gave what was fairly rare for uh, the Observer, like, an actual review of the match. Um, Dave wrote, I saw the September 17th Brian Danielson title win over James Gibson in Lake Grove, New York. It was a great match for its audience. <laughs> uh, the rest, the wrestling made sense and timing was good. It reminded me more of a great long mid-card match when they would put two great technicians against each other occasionally in the 1970s. It's more of a match of subtleties. After being told to watch it three times, three times and doing so, it is a match that gets better each time you see it. If you're into a long match on the mat with great mat work and that keeps the cr- and, and that keeps the crowd interested all the way through, it's for you and you'll think it's one of the better matches of the year. If you like fast your pace wrestling up and down crowd doing wild for every go, going wild for every t- spot type of big matches this is still a match you'll think is very good but you'll probably not see it as nearly the same level and so uh matt like this is not quite dave's kind of 
deprecating of the indies level review. He's pretty into it. I think the most shocking thing about that review is Dave is thinking back that there was a time when Dave Meltzer had the time to watch a 30 minute ring of indie match three times in a row because like nowadays there's big shows. He's so busy. He goes like, Oh, I couldn't see like this match I've been wanting to see for weeks or this show. This is like he's watching James Gibson, Brian Danielson, which is 32 minutes. He's watching it three times. Although it's also funny, like, cause Gabe, I mean, Dave has always had the line of like, well, a a match really matters on the audience for the night, you know, like how it affects that night. And and like, not the type of guy that says, oh yeah, you got to rewatch a match a bunch of times to get the real feel for it. So that was interesting too. But like, I did think it was interesting that he compared it to a mid card seventies match. Like, I don't know. I feel like this could have been a main event too (laughs) in the seventies. Didn't have to be a mid card match. Yeah, I think it goes bigger at the end, uh, bigger than you'd see in a mid-card. I mean, if that's the case, we got to dig through the crates and find some 70s wrestling matches. Apparently, there were a lot of gems. It's in the mid-card. Forget forget Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe. Got to look at some of those undercard matches. So after the match, Danielson poses on all sides of the ring with the belt. Someone throws a little bit of confetti in the ring even. Uh, The crowd is pumped that Danielson won, and he grabs the mic. Brian thanks the fans for the reception, and he says it feels so good to hold this title. Brian then wants the fans to show appreciation to James Gibson, a man, he says, that did not have to be here because he signed a deal with WWE. One single fan at this point screams, sell out, and Danielson immediately scolds them. He says, if you call what Gibson just did in this ring a sellout, then he's a sellout, too. Crowd, you know, applauds that. Danielson prompts the crowd to give Gibson a round of applause. They do. They chant, thank you for Gibson. Um, Brian says the last couple of Ring of Honor champions, their goals have been to go to the major leagues, to WWE. And at this point, this draws some booze. And he says they or to go to TNA. And this also draws some booze. He says, that's okay, because you need to make a living in this job. And some fans applaud. They're like, okay, you got us there, Danielson. And then Brian says, but there are reasons why I became a wrestler. And they're not to be subjected to the man. It's to have freedom. And this title represents wrestling freedom. As long as I'm champion, I will not go to WWE. I will not go to TNA. I will stay here and defend this championship like a man. He ends by thanking everyone for their support and hoping that they enjoy AJ Styles kicking the crap out of Jimmy Rave up next. And, uh... He walk. He Danielson then proceeds to high five the entire front row, and as he walks to the back, we can see a small group of wrestlers are winged to congratulate him, including Samoa Joe, Austin Aries, Colt Cabana, I think Roderick Strong, Jay Lethal. They're all there to congratulate him. Nice heartwarming thing. So next up, we got a little thing from the Torch. I thought I'd say it for this point because it's kind of summing up the whole night. Um, Ring of Honor, the Torch got a quote from Gabe Sapolsky. They said, Ring of Honor promoter slash booker Gabe Sapolsky is excited about Danielson being the new top title holder. Quote, it was exactly what we needed, he tells the Torch. We needed a guy that can bring stability to the world title picture after the last few months of not knowing when our champion was going to leave. We needed a guy that our fans can respect and a guy that we can build around. We can now say that we have the best wrestler in the world as champion, and that is no exaggeration. The match itself is a match of the year candidate, and I think it'll come out better, come out better on tape than it did live which is saying a lot um let me just see if there's another i'm just quickly skipping over something um okay no that was it i just wanted to say matt i think like thinking about it i don't i think they got so lucky with danielson here because i don't think he was exa- i think he was exactly what they needed for champion at this point and i don't think there was a guy that would have done nearly the job because when you think of it like gabe was saying they had two short-term champions in a row with um Punk and Gibson, two guys that not just were short-term champions, but that guys everyone knew was going to leave soon. And 
And I think that that's fine. I think having a couple short, I think you should have a short term champion as world champion every once in a while so it doesn't get predictable. I think even having two in a row is fine. I don't think three in a row would have been great. And so you needed a guy that you could count on would not be rejected from the fans. So that means you couldn't do like a new young guy in the position the way they had in the past with Xavier or Aries because you're taking a risk. If they don't, if they get rejected, then you need to switch the title again quickly. So you need a guy you already know your fans love that's going to deliver night in, night out. And you need a guy seen at that level. And you need a guy that is in no danger of going to TNA or WWE or Japan regularly. And I don't know who else was available that would have fit, checked off all of those boxes. I guess maybe Homicide, although TNA starts sniffing him very shortly after this. And also remembering, Gabe also never wanted to put the cha- the belt on a, on, a champ- on a guy two times. So you couldn't put it back on Aries. And, and he and Joe also would, were starting to work with TNA. Like, who else could they have even have done? Like, nobody. Yep, totally agree. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, they got absolutely incredibly lucky that, like, everything, like, everyone, like, you know, New Japan falling away from Danielson, TNA and WWE just crazily, like, snubbing him. I mean, it all worked out absolutely perfect for them. But Serendipity, for sure. Yeah. We get an ad next for Survival of the Fittest. Matt references earlier. It's Ter- weird ter- terrible voiceover by Bob, by Bobby Cruz. Not not his, out the mic. Yeah, not yeah, not his performance, but like the the audio quality. Oh my god, awful. And it's weird because one, they run down the whole card of matches, which is good. And Ring of Honor normally never does this, but the weird thing about it is, I don't know if they also just released this on the website or something. They, they did, but like, they did, yes, yeah, because that explains it. Because Bobby Cruz is act, he keeps saying this Saturday, like he's acting like he's trying to sell you to buy a ticket to a show that by the time you watch this on DVD would have happened like weeks, if not months earlier. This is an ad for the live show, which is just yeah. really, really weird. And it, it doesn't, and it also says action including the Carnage crew. Were they even on the DVD? Tony DeVito is in, on the show, but uh, Loke isn't. Yeah, I think Tony DeVito de- teams up with a student in a tag match or something. Yeah, but uh, that brings us to the main event: a finishers match. AJ Styles defeated Jimmy Rave in 1842 when he hit a Styles Clash off the second table through a table. AJ was scored to the ring by Mick Foley. Jimmy Ray by Prince Nana. So if you're wondering what a finisher's match was, it's probably exactly what you guess. But Bobby Cruz tells the entire crowd what it is before the start of the match. He says, this is an anything-goes finisher's match. There are no rules, no referee, and no time limit. Pinfall submissions and knockouts do not count. The only way to win is for AJ Styles to hit the Styles Clash on Jimmy Rave or for Jimmy E. Rave to hit the the Rave Clash on AJ Styles. And whoever, you know, hits the – whoever wins this match, the loser, cannot use that – move in ring of honor ever again so that's the steps um this match is weird man i felt like this was a match that actually got worse and visibly lost steam as it went on um i think the start of the match is fine it's like a good standard not particularly amazing but good standard brawl like there's a lot of punches aj does a lot of his wrestling moves and i think aj is one of the rare guys where like he can do his offense and he has such snap to it and, and it seems mean enough, mean enough in that sense that like he can do those moves in what's supposed to be like a feud ending brawl and you can still buy that like it's a fight. Where a lot of guys, if they just start doing their wrestling moves in you know, what's supposed to be like a hate filled brawl, I go, this feels weird. But for AJ, he kind of pulls it off. Um, and the match, you know, the first half you feel like, oh, this is a, 
you know, this isn't amazing, but it feels like it's building to something that could be good with a real hot final few minutes. And then about halfway through, the match just slows down. And it feels like there are times where the guys don't know what they want to do. Um, when Rave starts getting in control, it, it gets kind of plotting. And also, I would say a big criticism I would have of this match is – for uh, this is a feud ending match. This is a match these guys have been feuding for months. And you would think when you're working a feud for months, you would you would come with a lot of thoughts over those months about things you would want to do in the final match. And there's just a, a real I would describe a lack of imagination in this match. Like there isn't a lot of big crazy inventive things in, in the final bits. The biggest spot in this match, other than the finish, which is the Styles Clash off the second through the table, would be. Um, AJ German suplexes rave off the apron through a table, which I always think is like the worst table spot you can do because to do it safely and to AJ's credit, he does it safely in this match. You basically are just giving a guy a hug from behind and then falling backwards through a table. It looks like awful because it's yeah. the one taking almost the entire bump. I watched it twice that spot to see like, what's it a German suplex, but it really more look, looks like they just both fall, you know, yeah. like it, it's barely a suplex. And honestly, there's no other safe way to do it, but that's why I just would say don't do that, you know. But yeah. and that's the kind of weird thing. Like I was just thinking, this is a big match, and that's the best, like the the that's your best idea. And there was just stuff like that, or like um, multiple points in this match, uh, masked people come into the ring and they interfere, and they're supposed to be more of Prince Nana's weapons of mass destru mass destruction, and they get f fought off by Foley, and then later AJ and. Uh, they're all just Ring of Honor students. We learned this listening to the An Honorable Mention podcast. In fact, if you watch this match, the first student is a smaller guy and eight, that's mass that comes in, the first mat, weapon of mass destruction. And AJ Styles levels this guy right in the face with a clothesline. And it's a short guy, so he didn't judge the height right. right. And um, on the podcast, Shane Hagedorn reveals that that's actually Pele Primo, and AJ broke his nose on that. So when we're talking about like the opportunities Ring of Honor stars get to wrestle the big stars, when, when I was kind of being resentful about the wording of the ad, I was kind of thinking like that's the opportunities the Ring of Honor students are getting at this point. Running under a mask and get your nose broken. But uh, technically, yes, he did work with AJ Styles this night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but – and also I thought the Foley stuff – like Foley here, again, it's another one of those things where the attention to detail – I like the idea that Foley's debut in Ring of Honor was the year before at Glory by Honor, so this is his final show, Glory by Honor, and technically one of the groups he did kind of mix it up with on that show was the Embassy, so it does kind of come full circle, and he did have that thing with Prince Nana on a recent show where he got into it with him, getting mad about how they treated Jay Chung, but for the most part, Foley hasn't been involved with – um this feud and it's kind of distracting him at ringside like he's just such a big presence and just to see him hovering around the ring the whole time like cocking his fist but not doing anything and then at one point getting on the mic and telling the crowd to chant jimmy likes balls yep, like the second like the second of, the second egging on of homophobia by a baby face on this show yeah it just felt weirdly kind of out of place and not tonally right but I just felt something was off about this match, and I would still say the match was enjoyable enough. Like, I would say it's a low good. Like, they do enough stuff, and they're talented enough, but it's nowhere close to what it should be for a match on this card with this dip, being the end of a feud, what, what these two should be capable of. And the main event. And, yeah, exactly. A, a and, um, main event. 
And before I throw it to you, I'll, I'll say, listening to the Jimmy Rave interview he's done on multiple places, uh, I think this probably comes from another honorable mention, but he's also done shoot interviews with our video and stuff like that. He's talked about he thinks this match is disappointing. He thinks this is a big letdown. And when they were kind of talking about why he thinks, he, he mentioned, you know, like, you know, I thought Mick Foley and the weapons of mass destruction and Nana could have been used better in this match, although it doesn't go into why. But he also says, and this is something that they kind of brought up in the interview with him, like there was a perception among some people in Ring of Honor, apparently, that when AJ came back, you know, once he was working in TNA as a big, well, their big name, when he came back after the Feinstein scandal, that he never worked quite as hard in Ring of Honor again. And Rave agrees and says he said that it was really hard to get AJ, convince AJ to do stuff in this match. Like he, he basically kind of puts it on AJ that AJ didn't want to go all out in a match like this. And he also says something interesting, which was he is really mad or frustrated that, uh, he says that AJ, like he, he was saying setting up this feud, you know, I was winning or using the, the rave clash all the time, his move to build up to this match. And he said, AJ on the shows, he says, was having people kick out of the Styles Clash. And then I want to ask you, maybe he was doing this in other promotions like TNA or somewhere else. I can't remember a match in Ring of Honor up to this point, at least in the last few months, where AJ had anyone kick out of the Styles Clash. No, I mean, AJ hasn't had many matches in ROH. Um, and Rafe kind of made yeah. it sound like that he was here, but uh, I don't think he was, actually. The only matches he's had in ROH were the two matches against Rave. The match against Roderick, which Roderick definitely did not kick out of that Styles Clash. Um, the match <laughs> against um, Petey Williams also didn't kick out of the Styles Clash. In fact, didn't um, didn't he not even do the Styles Clash? Right, like he like he had to do it afterward because he had done it in the first place. Or oh, something yeah, like to send that. the crowd home happy. Yeah, because yeah. they never yeah. they literally sent him back out just to do that. Yeah, the um, right, and then uh, the match against uh, Sh- uh, Shima, which again I didn't. He, I know that um, AJ lost that match, but I don't think Shima kicked out of the Styles Clash. Um, I don't remember. No. I think I would have remembered that, but um, yes. Yeah, so definitely not on ROH. So uh, I guess what, what do you think about the match? I mean, because it is—it's it, weird because there are things I enjoyed in it. It's just there's something I, I don't know quite. Know you're usually better about putting things into words. Like, did you get that feeling that like they started to lose steam as they were doing the bigger stuff? First of all, I actually think I liked the match less than you did. Um, not wow! That it, not that it was bad, but like it was—it was really like it—it it was like bothersome and like how boilerplate it was. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, it lost steam. But I don't know if it like got slower. I think it's more like it just didn't get better, which is like not good when you have a longish match, right? Like it's an ROH main event, yeah. and you know this was the week after that big three-way like you mentioned so maybe aj was particularly like i'm gonna take the weekend and like not do as much but yeah this is the first match where i could really see like all right like aj would have clearly put more effort into this if this was a different era and you know what i don't necessarily blame aj for trying to save himself for big tna pay-per-views but at that but that in that case you if you're roh you say okay we're not put it we're not booking him in these in this position even if he's a star we're not putting him in main events because a, uh, ROH has a standard level that they need to have for their main events, and AJ was not cutting it here. And and I definitely believe Jimmy Rave that it was AJ because why wouldn't Rave want to put yeah. more into this, right? This was big for him. This yeah. was huge for him. But this match, there was just nothing to this match. It was just such like let's just fight around and do like basic stuff and like yeah like all the other big ROH like main event brawls like Rave against Punk and you know all the other stuff they would always like you know they were very intricately booked matches or like planned matches at least 
and this was not like this was just you know they 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 fought around. Foley was there in his Bruce Springsteen vest, which I pop for. Um, <laughs> um, but like you know, like yes, they had like the 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 weapons of mass destruction was just so stupid. Like just like they came out like a chicken mask and like a horse mask. I thought it was the horse whisperer Twitter account at first. <laughs> um, like just yeah, just goofy. Um, there was a spot where they try to get the. So first of all. It just, just this on its own was stupid to me. They have the timekeeper's table right there. And for some reason, Rave pulls another table from under the guardrail and puts it into the ring. And it's like, I get why for like the planned spot, why you had to have yeah. both there. But it just doesn't make sense, like logically, right? Like, why would he take, yeah. take a table from under the ring when there's already a table right there? But then they, they had a struggle. They couldn't get it into the ring. It took them like a lot <laughs> to the point where when they finally did get into the ring, the crowd cheered for them. Even though they, <laughs> they're supposed to hate the embassy, they were so happy for them for finally getting the table into the ring. Like stuff like that. Um, just, it just, just didn't seem like, yeah. I mean, it's not like AJ wasn't taking bumps and wasn't doing big moves, but he just didn't seem like he put mental energy into this match, I guess yeah. is what I would say. Um, which again, I know he had just had a pretty incredible match the week before. I get it, but. Still doesn't help the match, and I don't think it helps Jimmy Rave. This is definitely one of the more disappointing matches, I would say, of the year uh, so far in terms – I mean, but, you know, the crowd was up for it. It didn't kill the crowd. They they were fine with it. They they, they were just happy to see the stars. Um, the feud was over. Definitely a disappointing feud between AJ and Rave overall, just especially when you have the punk feud to compare it to when, like, you know, that just got Rave over so much. And this just felt bleh, you know? So, um, yeah, AJ, he, he's not really doing it so far in his return to ROH. Definitely not. We'll see if that improves at all. Um, but at least McFoley had a, uh, had a Springsteen vest on. <laughs> I will say AJ did do my favorite thing in this match, which was there was something he did, which I can only describe as like a shining wizard elbow drop where Ray was on one knee um, AJ runs up and jumps off his knee and straight into the air and then just comes down straight down with an elbow smash. And I thought that's like really cool. Like more people, that's, that's a cool spot. But yeah, I just wish there was more inventive stuff. It didn't feel like he put a lot of, you know, it's like almost like, you know, when someone cooks something, they say, Oh, this is special because it was made with love. Like you were saying, AJ did some good spots in this match, but not, did not feel like someone made this with love, this match. Like a- AJ was felt like he was doing this. He was making this from a mix, Matt. If they wanted to make, make it, it if they scratch. wanted this match to be made with love, they should have actually brought in Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> oh God! Um, so after the match, uh, Foley goes to give Nana a double arm DDT, but AJ stops him so he can put a chair underneath him, so he'll take it on a chair instead. Foley then DDTs Nana onto it. Prezak screams out thank yous to Mick Foley for his contributions to Ring of Honor in the last year. Uh, Bobby Cruz announces that as a result of the Styles victory, Rave can no longer use the Rave Clash in Ring of Honor. At this point, Foley gets on the mic, and he says this is his last time in a Ring of Honor ring. And by the way, I know, you're, turns- I know you're going to recap this promo, but um, it's only in wrestling will you have a guy doing a you know an emotional farewell while two other guys just lie in a heap at his feet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because 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 Rave and Nana are both just like selling in the ring the entire time, and, and, and it's great because Nana from time to time like starts to stir a bit, and then Foley will like tease stomping him like if you keep moving, I'm going to stomp you, and like the he does, he does stomp him a couple, times. and he does stomp him at one point, yeah. So I love that like Nana actually like kind of acts like he he acts like well I've got to start selling a little bit like like getting up because I can't sell that I'm dead forever, right? So that was cute, and the fans got a kick out of that, but. 
Mick says on the mic, it turns out I might be one of the sellouts that Mr. Danielson talked about just now. He says the fans here will still see him in Long Island, will still see him at Adventureland or a Long Island Ducks game or right here at Sports Plus or a CD strip joint. Foley immediately walks back that last one. So first off, Matt, as a New Yorker, do you uh, – are you, do you know Adventureland, Long Island Ducks games, or uh, CD strip joints? You, would, did you ever see Foley at any of those places? Well, this this is all Long Island stuff. I mean, maybe not the CD strip joints, but everything else is Long Island stuff. So, like, I'm not a Long Island guy. So that, it's all that's, the same to me, Matt. It's all the same. Yeah, you know, all there's, you I mean, it's all it's all part of the block. New York City metro area. But like, as with this guy with a several friends from Long Island, when they start talking about Long Island stuff and getting into like Long Island geography and stuff, I just check out. I'm like, all right, I do not <laughs> know all of these little nuances. So um, Foley immediately walks back. Like I said, that last thing about the strip club, he's like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> Foley says it's a goodbye though to the Ring of Honor fan that watches diligently at home through DVDs. At this point, a fan shouts Al Snow, and Foley goes, no, not Al Snow, you idiot. And that gets a big laugh from the crowd. He points out that the fan is wearing a shirt that says Cop Killer on it, and it was also an Al Snow fan, so he says that fan is a two-time loser. Uh, Foley says that he came very close to signing a deal with with TNA. That gets some booze. Foley then says he made a call out. He made a call out of respect to a friend named Vince. That also gets booze. Mick says he wanted to tell Vince McMahon that WWE would always be his home. He just wanted to leave home for a little while. Mick says that pauses and goes. Mick Vince didn't buy that line of shit either. Um, Mick talks about how persuasive Vince McMahon is. He then talks about how all the people that have left Ring of Honor in recent times were all raving about Ring of Honor wherever they went. He says guys like Steamboat and CM Punk, and Foley says he's going to be the same. He's going to continue to rave about Ring of Honor wherever he goes. Mick has received many a cheap pop in Ring of Honor, but all he's really done here is tell the truth, which is when he's asked about Ring of Honor, he says it's the best damn group of guys he's ever hung around. Nas, this is when Nas trying to get up and Foley stomps him down again. Uh, Foley praises Samoa Joe, homicide AJ. He calls AJ Styles a tremendous human being, which, eh, maybe not, maybe this is the wrong time after the last show. Um, he puts over the entire roster and says they do anything for the fans. He then says Ring of Honor asked him if they had any connect, if he had any connections in Long Island, and he reveals that he was the one that put together the deal for Ring of Honor to run here in Sports Plus. Uh, Mick Plus, which, which, which is genuine, which is genuinely a really cool thing to do for them, even if they did go out of business two years later. Yeah, I mean, you can't say Mick didn't try. Yeah, um, no, they Mick had a, they had a lot of shows there, so so it's a good deal and it was a good place. So. Mick plugs the next Ring of Honor show in the building. He says he'll miss being with the Ring of Honor guys, but that doesn't mean he still can't make the 15-minute drive here and hang out with them in the locker room. He loves the WWE, but he thinks there needs to be something else out there, and Ring of Honor fits that bill. He thanks the crowd, and they chant for him to stomp Nana one more time. Instead, Foley says, I'm going to hate myself in the morning, but I'm going to go throw Nana out of the ring, and I'm going to drop a damn elbow on, on Nana. Foley does this, just that. He throws down outside the ring, he gets on the apron, and he does a running Cactus Jack, classic Cactus Jack elbow off the apron to yeah. the floor. Now, now I, I, mean he, this in the, I mean this in the most endeared possible way. Foley's a fucking idiot for doing that spot right then. Like, come on, man. Like, take care of yourself. That was not necessary. And he, well, and well, we he, love him, but that's why we love him, right? You, he gets up and he immediately is like going, like you can tell he hurt himself doing that. Like, yes, as, as, sure as everyone would have predicted. I'm sure that was spontaneous. Yes, definitely. I'm sure yeah. Nana was happy that he got to take that move, though. I was, I was like, that's probably a cool moment for him. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. But yeah, but you know, that kind of, I would say that whole promo, like it's a great promo, and a way it kind of sums up like Mick Foley's run Ring of Honor, where. 
Sometimes it's a little bit too much about Mick Foley and WWE. Um, sometimes, you know, he's a little too self-congratulatory. But it's also very charismatic, very kind. And I think the biggest thing Mick had to offer for Ring of Honor, and you see it in this promo and the whole run there, is there are a lot of guys that go to Ring of Honor, big stars, and they talk up Ring of Honor, but you can tell they don't really like Ring of Honor or, you know, they're there or, for the Or, or, or don't, don't know much about it, yeah. Yeah, and Mick Foley... You really do believe when he talked about he, uh, he watched the DVDs and you know for a fact he praised those guys to WWE and tried to get them signed. Like, like you could, like Mick Foley gave an endorsement to Ring of Honor that you, that fans could actually believe that he cared about them. Or even like this, the, the, the spontaneous thing of like, hey, you know what? I'm going to throw the goddamn elbow because I just want to for this crowd. Like, like, I think that's the thing Mick most had to offer because, you know, the Samoa Joe feud never really came to a huge conclusion. He never had a match. He never had really like a life or death angle, even signed to the protein, like their steamboat punk angle. But what he had to offer was just a lot of legitimate endorsements at a time when Ring of Honor, you know, was right after the Feinstein scandal, when they really needed some credibility and someone, the, a big name like Foley to come by and say, like, it's cool to come back here, guys. It's OK. And that's what he gave them. And this really was his very, very last appearance in ROH, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, probably ever. I mean, you never say never, but... Yep. And Yeah, the- yes. We, we, we are not talking about the end of ROH tonight because we still don't really, really know for sure that it is or isn't, right? So we can maybe yeah, get to that we are- when... We can maybe get to that when it, or if it becomes official. Yeah, if, if it shuts down per- completely, we will have something to say. But right now, it's so up in the air, but... So we'll go to the Observer to get a little bit of wrap-up here. With Nana selling, Foley said, I'm going to regret this tomorrow morning, but I'm going to elbow drop Nana on the floor, off the apron. And he rolled Nana out of the ring to, to the floor and did. Nobody expected him to do that. He said he didn't bring any pictures with him. And since he had a 4 a.m. flight out, it was about midnight at this point, he would sign anything people had for free. An estimated 300 people stayed and waited in line for him to do it. Now, I know you. I'm going to assume you were not one of the 300 in line. But that's crazy when you consider it was 650 people in the crowd, according to Meltzer. Yes. 300 to get an autograph. I had to work the next day, and I had a long drive home. So, nope, I was not one of the people that stayed. And also, I don't think you're a really an autograph guy. Are you? I'm, like, definitely, I'm, not, I'm yeah. definitely not. Yeah, I haven't gotten an autograph yeah. from anybody since I was a little kid. It's just not yeah, my me, thing. Me too. Um, the Torch wrote, Mick Foley worked his final Ring of Honor date for the foreseeable future on Saturday night in Long Island. Foley had been making regular appearances for the promotion throughout the year, but recently re-signed with WWE. He addressed the crowd on Saturday night after the main event match, stating that he'll sing the praises of Ring of Honor when he's in WWE. He said he loves the WWE, but is glad there are alternatives. He then signed autographs in the lobby for free after the show. Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky says he will miss Foley. Quote, of course I am disappointed to see someone like Mick Foley leave Ring of Honor, but not I knew he was only in for a limited time, and the fact that we had him for, I think, 12 shows is more than I ever dreamed of having him in for. He tells The Torch, uh, Foley worked for Ring of Honor not for big pays or anything like that. He gave us time because he believes in the Ring of Honor product, and he wanted to support and help us grow. Every time Foley mentions Ring of Honor, it brings us attention from new fans, and his name always attracted new fans. He was a huge help to us. As a talent, Foley is probably the best promo guy of all time, and any time he appeared on a show, it gave us a memorable segment. And yeah, I guess that's the other thing I, I would want to bring up is just we've talked about this in the past, but at least some of these shows fully worked for free because I know like it was at least the the Liger show. There was that story we told of fully like 
called up Gabriel Webb was like, can I come to the show? I want to see Liger. It's like, I'll do it for free. Like, and he just did and did that impromptu promo that night with CM Punk. And just cause he thought it was cool. Like again, going to, he really liked the promotion. He just wanted to watch the Liger show. Yep. And that's really cool. But we're almost done now, folks. I know this has been a marathon show. Uh, we go backstage where Colt Cabana talks about how Homicide jumped him outside the ring at a previous show because he didn't like the way Colt was perceiving things. Tonight, Colt gave Homicide a chance to jump him in the ring, but Homicide instead brought chairs. He brought the Rottweilers. Colt turns his Ring of Honor baseball cap to the side and says, I'll do one. He has his friends Schwomo and Herbie. He has another friend, Steve Carino. Colt says if Homicide wants to play that way with other people getting involved, he'll play with him. He'll do one. So, yes, in fact, Steve Carino and Ring of Honor have made up for the 800th time. Steve Carino is coming back to Ring of Honor soon. Yes. Um, <laughs> we cut to Gary Michael Capetta backstage with Lacey. Gary wants the scoop on what Lacey was up to tonight with scouting talent. And she says she saw some great talent and some thing, and things are going to get very interesting with Lacey's Angels. Gary says Ring of Honor will be back in a week with this year's Survival of the Fittest. At this point, we get another little uh, music video showing a whole highlights of a uh, – Brian Danielson's Ring of Honor career with violin music. It's actually as far as Ring of Honor music videos of the era are pretty well done. Agreed. Agreed. And then I agreed. I remember oh, at the time I watched that I watched that video a lot of times because it was posted on the website right after the show, like way before the DVD came out. So I remember watching that a lot. It was a it's a really nice little package, all things considered. It's cool to think like there's so many highlights of Danielson's career before he did most of the stuff that he's famous for now. <laughs> Yeah, you could make a legit highlights of just his Ring of Honor run up to 2005. Up till before like, he run. wins the title. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, next we get a bonus match. Tony Mamaluke versus Jay Fury versus Sal Vernaro from FIP play, Payback. Trevor, We're no. Going to no. Now, no. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But uh, Gabe sold this as like a sneak preview of talent you're going to see in Ring of Honor soon. And in fact, you would see all these guys in Ring of Honor soon. And so that is that. Finally, we are done. And it makes sense our show was longer than usual because this show was, I think, about three hours and like 45 minutes probably. Yeah, we, on, just, it we, just made it, set. we just made it under being longer than the show itself. So we did it. Which is generally what we do with these shows. So it makes sense. So uh, that was the show. Matt, what to say about Glory by Honor 4? It was like a very momentous show. I mean, you had two major feuds end. You had uh, Mick Foley leave. You had Danielson return. You had a t- world title change. You know, all sorts of stuff. But, like, it's almost like you have to review the show on what it was, like, historically and what it was just in terms of, like, how entertaining was it? Because I feel like they might be slightly different things. Y- what do you think? You know, despite there being some things about the show that, bother me you know in the booking and you know a couple matches that weren't great i think this was a very good show um historically historically and entertaining wise like i think the bad booking stuff like if you're just watching for entertainment at 2000 2021 who cares right right and like there was there were two really good matches one in my opinion super excellent match and one very good match um a couple other pretty entertaining matches a really nice promo to end the show um you know, a disappointing main event, but one that was, you know, enjoyable enough, brisk, moved by briskly enough. Like, I, I, you know, and like the good stuff, I mean, the Danielson, the Danielson match especially just was so good. Um, and I think, you know, just a good vibe on this show. You know, it wasn't like, I don't know, the last couple shows just felt kind of dreary. And this show felt like the wrestlers were trying a little bit harder and the matches were a little bit better. And I just think this was – this show felt like, a, you know, one of, one of several new eras for ROH. And I think it felt like a, 
a little bit of like picking up steam, which is a good thing. Yeah, I would say not that the, like I would say um, after Punk left, we've reviewed the two shows that followed Punk leaving, uh, Night of the Grudges two and uh, Dragon Gate Invasion, and. I would say, you know, especially Night of the Grudges 2, but both shows were probably two of our, like, least enthusiastic reviews of 2005. And, you know, not that they were absolutely terrible, because nothing really at Ring of Honor in this period is terrible, but it did feel like they were kind of adrift a bit and kind of, you know, sometimes Ring of Honor goes through that period where something big, some big era will end, and they kind of need to find their new thing. And this show felt like them getting on the road to something new. Like we're starting something new where the last two shows kind of felt like this weird in between time. This feels like we're back on something. And yeah, I would say the only, I I really enjoyed watching the show, even though there was a whole bunch of matches on the show that were not as good as you would think on paper, they were still all enjoyable. I think the only way you could be disappointed by this show is if you kind of psych yourself out just looking at the card and thinking that every match is going to achieve what you think it could be on in your imagination. Because, like, yeah, a lot of these ma- – Aries and Azrael, Roderick Strong and, and Nigel, Colt and Homicide, AJ and Rafe, all of those matches could have been better, but they're all still enjoyable. And you got a great match and a really good match with the key, Jay Lethal. And so I think that, and, and then you add in all the importance of what all the different things that happen on this show and just the energy that gives it. And I think it's a really good show to watch. So recommended. And that brings us to the end of the show. So plugs, uh, through the years at gmail.com is our email. T H R O H for through. Um, if you want to contact us on Twitter, I am at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor MGF. Uh, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. And uh, apart from that, we are done. So I hope everyone had a happy Halloween. I uh, hope you didn't go too crazy on the candy, didn't find a razor blade. Uh, next time on the show, we will be covering Survival of the Fittest 2005, which, uh, you know, it, it's a show that's, you know, it's kind of another show that's, you know, no Danielson. We're one show away then from uh, Joe versus Kobashi, but. There's some interesting stuff. We got Gibson versus Daniels. We got another big survival of the fist where they try and make another big main event star. We have the debut of Ring of Honor of Milano Collection AT. So some stuff happens. Um, a match where two guys get concussions. Uh, should be an interesting show to review. Uh, so th- that does it. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. Watch out for Cougars. <laughs>